Said the night wind to the little lamb. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little lamb. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? A star, a star. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Welcome to the other side of midnight. No, you have not misdialed. You haven't clicked on the wrong item. You're not listening to the wrong station. This is our Christmas Eve special. On the other side of midnight, the real hyperdimensional. Yes, we're going to support that. Origins of Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is one of my favorite Christmas songs. Said the shepherd boy to the mighty king, Do you know what I know what I know what I know? In your palace warm, mighty king, Do you know what I know what I know what I know? A child, a child, shivers in the cold, Let us bring him silver and gold. Let us bring him silver and gold. Said the king to the people everywhere. Listen to what I say. Pray for peace, people everywhere. Listen to what I say. The child, the child, sleeping in the night, he will bring us goodness and light. He will bring us goodness and light. And Merry Christmas everyone. Welcome to this special edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, We're not alone tonight. We have three very special people, and hopefully some other special people will call in during the third hour when we're going to go to phones and some of our um, family members, the Enterprise Mission family. 2024 is going to be amazing. And tonight we're going to talk about How we get from here, which is horrible, to there, which is going to be a breakthrough. Now, this is not based on faith. This is not my, uh, you know, inherent Catholicism recurring, you know. This is prediction based on what's going on in the world tonight that most people, I guarantee you, 99.99999, do not even have a clue about. So, um, before I introduce our, our panel... Uh, I'm going to do a couple of newsy thingies because this is a time when you should be paying attention to the world and how it's going to change for the better. Uh, For the second night in a row, I'm featuring the story about Putin who is sending signals and has been since September 
of a willingness to freeze the war, have a ceasefire, and basically change his position from everything that's happened over the last almost now two years, 24 months. It is an extraordinarily positive signal of something, even though there are a lot of naysayers. Again, the reason that this and the nightmare of Gaza is happening simultaneous with the trials imminently of the 45th president of the United States and a major constitutional crisis around is he even qualified to run again based on the 14th Amendment and the third part of the bill. All of this up in the air, everything, everything, everywhere, all at once. And then into that, I mean, we go to item number two. And uh, by the way, if if you're new to the show, we have a section called Radio with Pictures, which is basically a subsection of the website. You want to go to tonight's banner. The other side of midnight.com is our uh, web address. Tonight's banner, The Real Ancient Origins of Christmas, which I uh, specifically chose that Rockefeller Center perspective because look at the tree. Look at the shape of the tree. Look at the figure formed by the two heralds near the camera in front of the tree in Rockefeller Center. And then look at the upward sweep of the skyscraper Rockefeller Center itself aimed upward toward the stars. Because that's what tonight's about. Many, many, many years ago, many years ago, um, when I was just kind of uh, groping around for, well, how does Christmas fit into, you know, anything, into stuff? Um, I, I, I became captivated by this idea of this connection between celebrating Christmas when we do and what's going on upstairs. I mean, my first love, astronomy, and then I mingled it with, you know, the symbols of Christmas, over which the most overwhelmingly interesting one was always the Christmas star. And as the years evolved, my understanding of that, which to me was the one overriding symbol of Christmas, a beacon the wise men followed to the main, you know, the, it, was, it, was a, it was a signpost up ahead, as Rod Sterling would say, many decades later. So to me, it's not surprising that swirling around tonight's Christmas Eve is the ultimate connection between up there, out there, beyond there, higher dimensions of space and time, and its connection to us and our ability to reach through and to manipulate and to turn extraordinary benefits from this long, long suppressed understanding and technology to the benefit of all mankind, humankind, 2023. So on that vein, number two, item number two, uh, which you're going to find by going to the uh, banner. Click uh, on the banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, it says fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you to the section of radio pictures where we have these links and these images for the show. So item number two, 
still in orbit, circling the Earth every 90 minutes, is this spacecraft, this incredible pioneering spacecraft carrying the most extraordinary experiment maybe in the history of humankind for many, many, many tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Because in orbit tonight, there is a spacecraft and a drive, which if when they turn it on, it moves. And it moves as far as they want to make it, and then it comes back. All without an engine and without fuel in any conventional sense. If this experiment works, as I said on Coast on Tuesday night, everything changes. By the way, we need to post my interview with George, which Laura prepared and sent to you, Kinthea, uh, uh, under the George banner at the top of the page so people can hear the full context of what I said on Tuesday night to millions of people, not just this very special Other Side of Midnight audience. So if you read item number two, which is a link to the Forbes article describing the company, the background, the underpinnings of DARPA, which is the Pentagon's kind of blue sky agency that will fund almost anything if there's a half chance it might work they conducted a five-year study which we didn't know about until you know this article appeared into the idea of fuelless rocketless propulsion in other words field propulsion in other words hyper-dimensional physics in action in a technology and as i've said many times if this thing works and everybody around the planet sees that it works. And you can't count the number of intel agencies in separate countries that are looking at this and going, oh, what if it works? Because, of course, they're thinking how to turn it into a weapon. Doesn't all the human race always think about that? Anyway, if it works, it changes everything because, as I said to George, once you crack the facade of the fake physics we're living under, You know, it's like the deep state has been keeping two sets of books. And by deep state, I haven't a clue who I'm talking about. Obviously, entities ruling, modulating, doing things like uh, Isaac Asimov wrote about in Foundation. Social engineering to guide us to a certain outcome. And if they wanted to guide us to where we would reconnect with the realities of a hyperdimensional physics and existence of which somehow we've been cut off, then this experiment could be the key because when they turn it on and their intent is to make a change orbit by 60 vertical miles, 100 kilometers. And the Forbes article talks about how they are speculating that even if they do that, no one's going to believe them. So, of course, my message to them indirectly because I've been able to reach them directly yet is we'll then send the damn thing to the moon put it into orbit around the moon then bring it back nobody will deny that there is no fuel on board if you do that this in, in other words this is a turning point because if this works it means the entire panorama of hyperdimensional physics in consciousness in biology in relationships of humans to humans our relationship to extraterrestrials, to other dimensionals, to the real reality of consciousness in the universe, it all will change because suddenly most people will say, instead of it's impossible, they'll say, okay, how does it work? 
and we will be off to the races. That's item number two, that story. So it's so crucial that it's at the end of 2023 and dragging into 2024 because they haven't turned it on yet. Now, the good news is I put a couple of bird dogs on the trail of the head of the company because I want him on this show as former science advisor to Walter Cronkite and CBS News. I want to do the first in-depth interview of this engineer, this visionary guy, when they turn it on and the damn thing works. And after some efforts on the part of, as I said, of two emissaries, we got a direct response from Richard Mansell, who is the head of IBO, the little South Dakota company that could. And he has agreed that he will be doing interviews only after the experiment is conducted. So we will continue to bird dog him. We will remind him. We've asked him to be put on the list so we may get a few hours warning before they, you know, turn the switch. Probably not, but, you know, I can hope. The point is that is a huge question mark hanging over everything we're going to talk about tonight, about, in my model, in my mind, the intrinsic, unmistakable connection between Christmas, the birth in 3D of a true hyperdimensional consciousness we call Jesus Christ, those of us that were of the practicing Christian faith, and all the other changes that go on at this time of year over and over and over again. And I'm going to have Georgia lead us through one more time this hyperdimensional calendar, which matches point for point with festivals and awarenesses that people have been celebrating for thousands. Of years, which takes us to Marie Wheatley. Marie Wheatley is the daughter. Uh, she's a um, daughter of, 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 of uh, I think his name was John Wheatley. I only had him on the show once, and it was at the very beginning. And I'm sorry, Marie, if I don't remember your, your dad's name. But he was a brilliant guest, taking us into realms of archaeology and torsion field physics and dowsing and all these hyperdimensional sciences that very few others have ever tried. And what's really interesting, if we want to you know, extend the uh, Adam and Eve metaphor to its breaking point, they say that talent and genius does not fall far from the tree. Well, John's tree bore Maria, who, if anything, is even better at this than her dad was and has made fundamental groundbreaking discoveries culminating now with the publication of her latest book, which says something in the title about the secrets behind Stonehenge. Stonehenge Christmas connection? Yes. So without further ado, <clears throat> Madam Wheatley, tell us about the real ancient origins of Christmas. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, the origins of Christmas really is all about what's called the wheel of the year. And the wheel of the year is the cycle of the sun, the cycle of the sun at its peak and at its weakness, which has been personified throughout the ages, throughout time. So really, to, for the Celts, it's an eightfold year with different peak times, such as the winter solstice, the summer solstice, for example, Beltane, May the 1st, and Lammas, which would be August the 1st. These 12 key, these uh, eight key points 
of the sun cycle represents different festivals which are still celebrated today for example at the winter solstice i was at avery taking some guests round, and there were the druids the pagans the wiccans all celebrating the time of the year which we call the winter solstice the rebirth of the oak king in Wiccan tradition the holly king is the, the kind of winter dark time and then at the winter solstice the oak king is reborn it's a time of celebration okay let me ask a, 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 a question here which is kind of the cornerstone of the entire conversation you know on this Christmas Eve don't you find it a little suspicious that all of these festivals cluster at this time Yes, I mean, from the time of ancient Rome, for example, with uh, with Saturnalia, that would start around December the 17th and culminate on the 25th. It is the peak point when, especially when it's on December the 22nd, the winter solstice, because a lot of people confuse the summer solstice and the winter solstice with midwinter's day and midsummer's day. So the winter solstice is when the sun ingresses into Capricorn at naught degrees, that's the actual astrological timing of it and then it's at its standstill that's what solstice means standstill then three days later on midwinter's day it's the sun starts to rise again in the northeast all ancient cultures look to that and at well hang on, hang on hang on just for people that kind of <clears throat> can get this when she says northeast it rises then a little bit north of where it's set three days before so it isn't like a huge movement. It's incremental, about one, maybe half a degree per day. And the sun is half a degree wide. So it's about one sun diameter per day moving toward the north. And it's that moment, that nadir of between darkness and light when darkness is predominant. That's at the solstice. But it didn't always used to be. The solstice moves in terms of the Earth calendar because of this thing called precession. So my point is that all these festivals cluster around the solstice window because they're all in one form or another ultimately looking for that dimensional gateway that opens widest at the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere and the southern because the planet is, is exposed totally. And that's when all these hyperdimensional connections come through. Yes, and at places like Avery and Stonehenge and Stone Circles worldwide, that's where you would have a stone at that particular angle. Now, at Avebury, for example, you have a very famous, huge monolith. It's about 80 tons called the Devil's Chair. And the Devil's Chair has a seat in it. It's literally got a ledge that's been carved into it. And that originally faced the winter solstice sunrise. Now, experiments have shown that just where your head rests against that stone, there's a magnetic anomaly that kind of is around the third eye crown chakra for some, depending on one's height, and that tends to be activated. But not only that, 
all of the solar ley lines and the solar earth currents, for example, they too become more highly charged with mm. energy that flow through the, the landscape as well. So it's like at this time of the year, everything is charged with that portal gateway where the direction of the sun is. And it's been uh, still, like I said, celebrated today, whereas at Stonehenge, for example, the main alignment is to the midwinter sunset. That's where the sun would align perfectly between the greater trilophon as it sinks. So Avery was about the sunrise and the sunset was at Stonehenge. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's go to, to, to Rome now. because. When I was growing up, you know, my mother was very much into, you know, she was kind of the really observant Catholic in the family. And, you know, she was interested in Christmas, of course, because all Catholics make a big deal of Christmas. And it was from her that I first heard that, wait a minute, Christmas isn't really Christmas. It's this much more ancient pagan. I mean, made a real big deal, the pagan part. Holiday, you know, celebrated in Rome around Saturn. And I always wondered you know, up until a certain age, of course, why it, it took it over, why Christmas kind of took over the, the, the real estate of December 25th when if you read the Gospels and you read any, you know, exegesis about the Gospels, Christ was most likely born in the spring because that's when you would have shepherds out at night watching flocks from wolves and whatever. So um, this shift never made any sense to me until I realized it was a whiskers away from the solstice, and then many years later, decades later, realized that that is incredibly meaningful in this hyperdimensional model, because that's when the gate is open. And look what happened. Yes, I mean, uh, Saturnalia was very famous in Rome, but preceding that, the Celtic culture, their day used to start when the sun set, the eve. And it was Julius Caesar that recorded in his very famous book, uh, Dispata, that that's where we get the term Christmas Eve from. It's the start of something to, to the ancient Celts. But if we turn you, our you, attention... You know what's so weird? All the time growing up, and I'm going to do a lot of reminiscing, you know, that's what you do at this time of year. Sure. Christmas to me was not the day. It was the night before. You know, Swedes celebrate Christmas Eve as a bigger day than Christmas Day. All of Europe does. So that's, to me, the, this is the sacred night. This is, and it goes back to the night and the star and all of that, and one of, one, another one of my favorite carols. So, sorry, I just had to kind of break in there. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the, the start of everything is the eve towards the Celts. So the end of the day was the dawn. It was the other way round, for example. But starting on December the 17th, Saturnalia, it was a time in Rome, and that's my first picture. If you go to the uh, radio with pictures, that's the temple of Saturn, for example. And it was a time when roles would be reversed, where the masters would feed the slaves, for example. And it was a really big 
party time where there were celebrations and feasts. And it would go from the 17th right the way up to December the 25th. It was a time when they celebrated the sun god, Sol. What, Vind, uh, what, what is that uh, cathedral behind the Saturn Temple? Well, they're all the, the side chapels and ruins oh, okay, okay. that would be associated with. So you'd have an actual temple, but you'd have an offering uh, chapel. And same like when you go to ancient Egypt, there's a temple within temples within yeah, temples. Because the architecture looks an awful lot like St. Saint, Saint Peter's. Well, yes, I mean, though, you'd have, you have layers of uh, history in places like Rome and across uh, Europe. Hmm. So, sorry to interrupt, I just, I'm just startling. It is. I mean, there's, there's lots of different uh, ruins over there. But Saturn featured a lot in all traditions as well. And on my picture number two, you see our traditional ley line going through the, the countryside, linking famous ancient sites in England like Stonehenge to Avebury and to uh, Mars, for example. All of the planets in the landscape of Avebury and Stonehenge were linked to the heavens above symbolically speaking and this was uh, an ancient map that came from the Reverend Duke's own archives and when we look to the placement of Stonehenge it represents Saturn and so the, you probably would have had at Stonehenge as well that whole Saturnalia but mm. starting more likely at the winter solstice but on that ley line it's interesting to note where you have where you had a huge henge monument called Marden that that's associated to the cycle of Mars and the old English word for den was settlement farmstead you have the settlement of Mars and when we look to those heavens above, that's the planetary energy associated with each of those sites. And Avery was the temple of the sun and the temple of the moon, as recorded by the 17th century antiquarian William Stukeley. Uh, Maria, I presume you remember that, that Avery, uh, quite different than it is now, uh, where they have yes. a tavern right in the middle of it. <laughs> um, it used to have two circles of stones and they were tilted off north by 19.5 degrees. Yes, the, uh, no, the northern inner circle, Temple of the Moon, and the southern inner circle, Temple of the Sun. Mm -hmm. 19.5. You can't say the physics any louder than that. And back when they were built, any ideas? Well, I mean, the orthodox dating puts them to 2500 BC, but they probably go back long, long before oh, I was, then. I was hoping you had another date because they're much, much, much older. But that means that this connection is incredibly ancient before Rome. Rome is only, you know, like the latest in the iterations of this celebration at this time around the solstice because it does stuff. If you unite people, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men or toward men of goodwill, which is the way it was originally written. If everybody focuses, it's like this mass consciousness experiment that goes on around the solstice. If everybody focuses on peace on earth, goodwill among men, it can more likely happen. 
Absolutely. And just north of Avery, you're talking about uh, Avery being much, much older than Rome. Well, if you go one and a half miles north of Avery, you have a temple called the Windmill Hill Causeway Enclosure, which is picture number four on, that I handed to you earlier. And that's a thousand years older than Avery Stone Circles. And what Windmill Hill Causeway Enclosure is, it's an earthen uh, ditch and bank that goes in circles. It's like three concentric circles of ditches and banks. And each one of those ditches and banks has a gap in it. So this is one of the oldest monuments in the ceremonial landscape. And what I discovered on Windmill Hill is in those gaps, which archaeologists thought were just random, that's where the sun rises in the eightfold year that we were talking about earlier. So it has a beautiful alignment to the winter solstice and all of those different times of the year. But a thousand years later, the Bronze Age came and they started building round barrows that they placed on Windmill Hill. And in my picture number five, what I also discovered there was they arranged these round barrows so the sun would appear at the winter solstice sunset to sink perfectly into that huge mound, which is about 20 feet high. And it covers quite a lot of ground and the shadow of that mound would then race across the ground and encompass another round barrow nearby so to the oh ancients it, it wasn't you, just the sun it was the shadow lines that they were well do you well. Re, do you remember sam you know bosnia sam sam Osmanovich, telling us yes. that they measured that the layout of the pyramids in Bosnia, these huge mountain-sized, mile-sized, mega architectural remnants under, you know, grass and trees and all that, they're aligned in such a way that the shadows dancing between them does the same thing, same thing. Yes, yes exactly. It was a feature in the ancient world. So all of but the, he's the dated, shadow... But he's dated by radiocarbon, you know, remember the leap under the rock in the tunnels? Yeah. Yeah. 30,000 years ago, which yes, of course, the new, the, which of course, new, is, go ahead. Sorry. I said the new dating system now is much, much better than that uh, carbon dating. It's uh, lumino luminosity, right. optical stimulated luminosity. And that's where they put an unintrusive kind of camera down, if you will, to the base of a pyramid or the base of the stone. And then they measure the last time that daylight hit that area to get even more accurate dates. Hmm. Sounds like we should be using that on our thing on the moon. Because remember, we've discovered, you've been part of the team, there's a damn Stonehenge on the moon. Yes, yes. And again, what we see about ancient sites and probably with the pyramids as well. And when you look at Stonehenge, when you look at Avery, when you even go to the Giza Plata, it's quite a, a slope that comes down. And that's to accentuate the shadow lines. So Stonehenge is on a sloping ground. And any shadow then can go for miles. If we go to a beautiful stone circle in Cumbria, the north of England, called Castle Rig, the tallest standing stone in that circle, cast a shadow line that's two miles long and ancient sites are lined on that shadow line. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. 
my guests, Maria Wheatley and uh, uh, Georgia Lambert, who will be with us at the beginning of the second hour. Tonight is Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas, everyone. Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Christmas Eve, Sunday, December 24th, 2023, a time of connection and reflection. So, Maria. Yes. There you are. Okay. So, please continue. To me, what's so stunning is that we can trace now this connection, this date, the solstice alignment, all of these celebrations and we didn't get to Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and all the modern, you know, uh, things that happen. It's like everybody at some level knows this time of year is when, when you make the phone call, you can get an answer. Absolutely. And I think as well, the ancient peoples were very sensitive and close to nature, far more than most people today, because quite a few people have a disconnect with nature. <laughs> so, yes. so what 
so what's going on in the ground? Were people sensing things not just above with the sun, but in the, in the ground alike? And if you go to my picture number eight, you will see what's called the Hartman grid. And the Hartman grid was very famous. It was discovered in the 1950s by Dr. Ernest Hartman. And if you imagine surrounding the earth is like a fishnet of all these grid lines and little squares that are about 2.5 meters by two meters. I know you guys don't do meters, so <laughs> forgive me. For, forgive me, you do, you do feet. Uh, we're just, so used just to multiply, just just uh, multiply by three. That's all. It's close enough for folk music, as we used to say. <laughs> uh, so you've got uh, this grid covering the Earth, and some grids, like the Curry Net, for example, which is just a bit bigger, about a meter bigger than the Hartman grid, that's considered to be geopathic stress and quite toxic, especially where those crossing points are. So if you look to the Hartman grid, my picture number eight, it gives you a very good indication, and that's global. And it creates like lines of force, lines of power, that they are very attuned to the sun's movement uh, in that wheel of the year as now, well. How, how has this been measured? This, uh, well, according to Dr. Hartman and Dr. Curry that discovered uh, the Hartman and the Curry grid respectively, they started to notice a difference when in their private practices in Europe, a bit like Harley Street is to London, for example, a very prestigious medical street with private doctors, then their blood serum of their patients would change depending on where they were in the practice. Oh. Oh my God! That was, yes, that that's was astonishing. First. That's such that's such science. Oh, absolutely! It's very well documented by Dr. Kathy Batchelor uh, in in her book because they started to take take different samples of blood and realize that where they were in the practice, if it was on oh the curry net. God and you sleep above those lines and you interact above those lines, then your blood is going to get thicker. And it also So hang on, hang on. So Hartman proposed that there was this network, this mesh, like a like a fine fish net, covering the entire planet. Yes. Exactly. And there was another grid discovered in the 50s as well called the Curry Net. And they labeled the adverse effects of living above these lines, which some uh, people confuse with ley lines because they're very similar, as to be geopathic stress, to be quite toxic mm. and to be avoided. But so how can was... you not in any piece of real estate, you know, be over one of the danger points? They're only a few feet away. You can't even lie well, down. The, 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 no, no, the main one is the curry net, which is 3.5 meters by 3.5 meters. Yeah. Uh, but you, you can easily put your bed into what's called a neutral position. And they're not very wide, these lines. They're only about, oh, you're going to really dislike me now. They're <laughs> only about 10 centimeters wide. Okay. So, so they're not really very wide. It's about There's six way, inches, you know, six inches, yeah. yeah. So you can just move the bed away away from these. So, so it, then, wait, wait, wait. You mean this is only for sleeping? It's not when you're because yeah. I, I I live in a house. I go from room to room, but I sit yeah. behind the computer. I sit in the living room. I sit. In other words, you spend a lot of time in place when you're not sleeping. Also, yes, that's when you do look for. Uh, 
the the lines, but they are so. This would be basically a game of hopscotch. You you play your own game of hopscotch. You jump from center to center, from room to room, hoping never to. I mean, come on. No, no, you only have geopathic stress uh, symptoms if you've been asleep and above those lines for years. Transient times above them, like working at my laptop, moving to the kitchen, that's not being above that grid so, for, for a so, long, long so, time. So this energy information grid really is tuned to your frequency between consciousness and unconsciousness. Yes, it's really when, when you sleep above it and you'd get signs of geopathic oh, okay. stress, yeah, like yeah. your teeth grinding, you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning between 3 and 4 o'clock when the grids are really strong and they tend to become mm. even more active with geological stresses such as a volcano going off, earthquakes, that type of thing. But there's a much, much smaller grid oh, no. uh, caught <laughs> no, this one's quite good. This one's Just when I thought good. it was safe to lie down, now it's oh dear. No, there's a there's a much smaller grid known to geomancers and dowsers called the Saturn Square, and the Saturn Square, if you imagine, it's uh, that's picture number nine in uh, radio with pictures. It's a very small grid containing uh, three squares. And that total to nine squares. So there's three squares wide going three, six, nine, and that's a Saturn square. And that can manifest in the Earth. And that's especially powerful round about the times of Saturnalia. So these Saturn squares in the ground, because the Earth produces okay, circles okay, okay. of well, energy. Why, why, Maria, why yes. this focus on Saturn? Now, from Rick, obviously even before, because my mom was into astrology. Saturn was associated with concreteness, foundations, strictures, order, you know, civil bureaucracy, in other words, static frames. And when Saturn does something weird, uh, you know, conjunct the sun or, you know, trans whatever, it, mm. the foundations of everything change. But that's so close to the concept of what's going on at the winter solstice. It's like it's a Saturn return, not every 28 years and change, but every year. Well, to the ancient Chinese, the Saturn square is the foundation of feng shui or feng shui, however you want to pronounce it, because this particular square in legend was on the back of a turtle that um, moved out of the river Lo. It's called Lo Shu. And all of those squares represent the art of placement. So, for example, the south would represent, you know, one's uh, public recognition and fame. The north represents your career. So everybody's Mm. house in ancient China was laid out to the Saturn square. Now, in mathematical terms, this Saturn square always adds up to 15 no matter what direction that you add those numbers up, and you'll see that in picture number nine. For example, the top row is 492, the second row is 357, the third row is 816. Well, it looks to me like it's a planetary tic-tac-toe. A a tic-tac-toe, sorry? Ever seen a a tic-tac-toe square? I don't know what tic-tac-toe is. Oh, it's a square exactly like this square, except instead of numbers, there are letters. And you're supposed to connect them in more than two ways and you can't. And, I, and whoever does it first wins the, the game. 
I'm wondering if tic-tac-toe is not a dumb, dumb, dumb down version of this. Well, it could be. I mean, this is one of the most uh, sacred and commonest uh, squares that can uh, manifest, and that's why the ancient Chinese were using it to the art of placement. And, of course, a a square is a two-dimensional version of a 3D cube, which is two tetrahedrons intertwined, a double tetrahedron. It's the physics. Exactly, and that's how the Chinese saw it, Richard. They saw it as a cube. So if your ah! house is, is, on the, is on the bottom, then the cube rises up to have your second-story floor or your third-story floor. So everything is like a cube in the, the Saturn Do Square. Do you remember in the congressional testimony about UFOs in Washington in the uh, House subcommittee in the spring uh, where they had one of the witnesses, the DOD guy, David Grush, and he described the repeated encounters of our guys in F-18s with a UFO off the Virginia coast where the military has reserved a airspace to do practice, okay? And this same geometry UFO kept appearing and appearing, and they even got pictures of it at one point, and it was a cube <clears throat> inside a sphere, tetrahedral, double tetrahedral geometry, the physics. Yes, and to, to geomancers, not astrologers, but to geomancers, the Saturn square is the most powerful aspect of all of the solar squares apart from the sun itself. So if we have a look in geomantic terms at the landscape, the Saturn squares become very active as the sun squares do as energies within the land round about the time of the solstices and especially the winter solstice related to 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 Saturn. For example, if you go to my picture number 10, which is a sun square, which is called by geomancers six times six magic, then all of those squares, if you go diagonally across that square, you go horizontally or vertically, they all add up to 111. The Saturn square all add up to 15. The magical constant, which is all of the numbers added up in the Saturn square, are 45. But in the Sun square, that all of the squares added up, it's the home of that numerical force. Now, when you come to Washington, D.C., and you come to the big Masonic lodges at noon, at the height of the Sun's power in the middle of the day, then they're windows they will always have one window which is that grid of the sun for the sunlight to stream through at the time of its zenith because a lot of the ancient world wonders and there were seven wonders of the ancient world for example yeah why were there why were there seven seven symmetry tetrahedral spins Absolutely. And even in ancient England, you had seven ancient kingdoms. Uh, And Lemuria, if we're to believe the texts that were written by uh, the translations of the Nakals, the ancient Indians, and they had then seven kingdoms. And Atlantis, according to Lewis Spence, had seven kingdoms as well. The seven ancient wonders of the world, and the sun being the bronze statue of Helios on Rhodes, the moon being the temple of Artemis, 
Hades and Venus uh, being the tomb of a beautiful tomb in Turkey and the Great Pyramid Mercury, the Hanging Gardens were Mars and Saturn, according to Wikipedia, was the lighthouse of Alexandria. But to ancient peoples, the Saturn was the Temple of Solomon. But Wikipedia has changed that to a more, a more of a modern interpretation. And all of these ancient sites were placed above their magic square. And that magic square is how you would activate and control or implant or program these ancient sites at particular times of the year. And Solomon's temple was the Saturnian one. In terms of geomancy, that means you can manifest. Whereas, you know, astrologers would classify it like you described as a sense of order. But to the ancient Romans, uh, Saturn would have represented agriculture as well uh, in the reaper mode of harvest. Okay. I can't do this. I, I have to do it and I don't want to do it. Georgia, come on in. You've got to tell everybody why Saturn is foundation and, and stability and all that. Maria, we will, you know, I, I, I just can't miss this because she just sent me this really neat message in uh, Skype and I've got to put it on. Maria, uh, Georgia. Yeah, hi, Maria. Hi. Um, you know, in, in ancient times before the modern planets were discovered, Saturn was the outer edge of the solar system. And so it sort of described the limitations of the solar system. And in many cultures, Saturn is called the Lord of Karma. It's incredibly important and strong, as Maria was saying. Super. <clears throat> okay, Maria, continue. Yes, yeah, so when we look at, when we try and find these squares of antiquity, like I said, it, the Earth produces giant uh, shapes of circles, spirals, lines. We're familiar with those lines as grid lines or, or ley lines. When she manifests these squares, and so you always tend to have a square feature at an ancient site. Look to the station stones at Stonehenge. It's rectangular, square-like. Look to what surrounds the obelisk stone at Avebyhenge. It's a square. They would integrate these different shapes that represent these different uh, energies. And the Saturn square to a geomancer is a place where you can actually activate that site. And it's done by the power of 15 because that's its magic constant. And so it's believed by uh, Western uh, practitioners like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, that's where you would stand to increase your auric space. And with dowsing, for example, one measures the aura before interacting with the Saturn square and then after interacting with the Saturn square. And it really does expand the aura quite some distance. Wow. And and when we've tested this out with, you know, just looking for to see if there's an anomaly of energy on the square and outside of the square, that's been picked up uh, as well in terms of uh, negative ions. And when we release that square in an ancient site, it's believed that's where the priesthood stood. It's a, a, a site away from the esoteric center of a site. So these squares are the keys to different aspects of ourselves and our consciousness. And that's why the ancients included them in all of the wonders of the ancient world. Mm. They're not just placed randomly. They're placed on the geodetic 
That's the Earth square that represents those numerical numbers. Okay, I've got and two questions. Two questions. Sure. Have you Absolutely. used? Have you measured the field effects, the energy level, the whatever you would want to call it, at Stonehenge on the solstice? And if so, how did you do it? It's very difficult at Stonehenge to do anything of worth and merit because you're surrounded by sometimes up to 30,000 people. I mean, it's the time of the year the English Heritage opened that site up to the general Whoa. public. So it's not the best time to do anything. It's, it's almost like they wanted chaos. to obscure the signal with a lot of noise. Exactly. That's what we all say, Richard. You're really on the money there because that's it. It's a time, instead of being in its power where you could interact with the energies in a, in a calm way, they turn it into this kind of party atmosphere and it becomes chaos. And people are even standing on the stones and they're having like this kind of raucous party. They're, they're having on. a Saturnalia party. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's not changed uh, at, uh, at Stonehenge. But we do know that all of these uh, the kind of more masculine squares, uh, like, you know, Jupiter and the Sun and Saturn, they become active with the Sun, and the more feminine ones become active more with the moon placements and with the transits of Venus, for example. So they resonate hmm. in the heavens as well. <clears throat> okay, here's the next dumb question. Have you ever tried to, or, or imagined or, or attempted to measure the energy of the Stonehenge on Christmas Day as opposed to the solstice when everybody should have gone home? I wish. Uh, <laughs> that would be on my wish You list. haven't? Well, you can't enter it. It's closed. Yeah, but you, it's, don't, it's, you don't have to enter it. You just get close. Remember. I mean, you, 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 can, you can get close to like we did with those radio signals to uh, to the torsion field. You can sure. or you can't? Yeah, well, you, you could go near. Yes, yeah, remember, I, well, I measured with the Accutron, these fields are bubbles that are miles across, depending upon the energy and the amplification. And certainly they're well within the parking lot. So you don't have to be yes. in the monument. Remember, I got amazing readings and they wouldn't let me go to the center of the monument. I was on that asphalt walkway and you know bingo gangbusters and then i walked 90 degrees away nothing zero over the heelstone dead as a doornail so there's an active directional like a, like a lighthouse energy signature around stonehenge all you got to do is find it at christmas and it's close enough in the model to the solstice that it should still be very very near the peak and nobody around. Yes, well, that would be the because the they're all home greedily getting presents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for example, the the Sphinx in ancient Egypt that would be placed on the square of the sun as well. See, you still and have it, time. No, no, no. It's already risen. The sun has risen over yeah, there. Yeah, it's Christmas Day for me now. It's your Christmas Eve. I know, I know. I'm just day. thinking. We we we, we kind of <laughs> missed the window. I didn't think you should do this on the parking lot. To uh, finish off with uh, my radio with pictures, on the uh, slide number 10, you sh we show a seal because in magical terms, all of these squares are the consciousness of the planet. They inherit the consciousness of the planet. And you can seal that off. See, without the hyperdimensional model, this just looks like nonsense, gobbledygook, just folklore, just, you know, anything. Mm. But it's the geometry of the physics, so we know it works. 
Absolutely. I mean, people have uh, always said, you know, through, through the ages that Mercury retrograde, you know, can... We're in one now, by the way, I think. Our, 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 exactly. Our, oh, my. And that's why I'm saying to people, what you can do is you can to stop the effects of Mercury retrograde or any planet retrograde in the Western magical tradition. You get the Mercury square and you could get, you could, you know, cut it out by printing it out on, on a printer. And then you put Mercury seal over the top, face down onto that square. Wait, wait, you, said, you, you, you put Mercury what? You give, for example, go on online, get a picture of the Mercury Square. Oh, 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 okay, okay. Get a picture of the Mercury seal and cut them out. You mean symbol? You mean symbol? Yeah, the the actual square, the actual square and the seal, which is Well, some people may not know that all the planets and the sun and the moon have separate symbols. They have a magic square. We're not talking about the symbol. We're talking about the magical square that represents their consciousness, which you could find out online. You can see the picture of Saturn and the square of the sun on my radio with pictures. You could print the Mercury square, magical square out. Then you get the magical seal of Mercury and you put that face down over the top of the Mercury square Mm. and that negates retrograde it's one of the first laws of magic mm. how to work with the consciousness of the planet See, to me i've always found mercury retrograde incredibly useful because it stirs the energy which if you're trying to invoke or create or context change you know you basically need more energy for stuff to happen and if you have a mercury retrograde around the winter solstice that's why my measurements up in the living room are going bonkers and you should feel it. That's why there's a war going on, two of them. And that's why focused intention to change this, to make it stop, has the best shot right now, tonight, to make it stop. Uh, absolutely. And that's a very relevant point. And if it wasn't for Mercury going retrograde in the heavens, which it does three times a year, you wouldn't get that beautiful pattern that many of your listeners could look online. It's where Mercury produces this beautiful trifold pattern in the heavens above that is uh, known to the ancients and it does that three times a year but we tend to use these magical squares it's just to if you're having problems with communication just to put that over the top but if you're like you're saying having a very positive time with with mercury retrograde then you wouldn't do that but it's just a key a magical key that can help us work with the planetary consciousness well remember the model is that you can't surf unless surf is up you can't twist the ether, you can't move the hyperdimensional torsion field, you can't change negative events on Earth to positive unless you got enough energy behind you to unite as a community to make it work. That's what tonight, in fact, is. Absolutely. And and even in ancient Babylon, the square of Mars was incorporated into the hanging gardens of Babylon, uh, so the legends say. So all ancient cultures incorporated these magical squares that can manifest mathematically by doing maths on paper or they manifest in the earth as above and so below. I love number 11, but I got to warn you, there's a problem. I think Keith got the wrong email uh, ad- address or, or, or URL or whatever because 
when you click on the book or the link, it doesn't take you to your book. It takes you to Aubrey Earle's book or Burl uh, on Stonehenge. It's not the link to your book. So, okay, well I can send that on in if you like. Yeah, later, please, please, yeah, put it, put it, put it in the Skype window. Uh, what time is it? It's five fifty-eight. Okay, perfect. Yes, we will go to break. We'll come back with uh, Georgia and Maria. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Merry Christmas, everyone. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the in sin and error pining Till he appeared And the soul felt its worth A thrill of hope The weary world rejoices For yonder A new Side of midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. And welcome back, everyone, on this Christmas Eve, 2023, Sunday night, beginning of the week, and what a week and a year it is going to be if we hold the faith. It's not a matter of insubstantial faith. It's faith in a physics which actually can make things happen, as they have for at least the last 2,000 years. The glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders and wonders. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. Anyway, let's go back to Maria, and she has been joined now formally by our resident metaphysician, Georgia Lambert. Georgia, where do you want to begin? Because I think we need to dovetail <clears throat> with this really amazing background uh, Maria's laid out. Yeah, uh, I'd like to uh, bring the uh, listeners' attention back to what Maria was saying about the magic squares. There's a wonderful book called Jesus Christ, Son of the Sun. That's S-O-N of the S-U-N by David Fiedler. And he talks about the magic square of the sun in relationship to Jesus and his teaching. It's a really fabulous book. So there's a, another link to what Maria was talking about. Super. Okay. So you want to start with the square? Well, uh, again, you know, Maria did a super job explaining all of that. It, what I wanted to add is that this particular time of the year is the birth of the divine child, not just Jesus, but so many other systems. This is also the birthday of Mithras. Ah, yes, Mithras. Son, Ancient Persian, I believe. Ancient Persian, Zoroastrian uh, celebrations at this time of the year. Uh, the Celtic Mabon, which is a festival, but also a name. Uh, the Norse Balder. In other words, all the divine children are born at this particular time. And the reason is that matter, the cycle of matter, delivers the goods as the mother 
at winter solstice. Now there's an interesting period between winter solstice and the next festival in the eightfold year that Maria was talking about, which is Candlemas called Imvolk or Imvolk in ancient traditions. In Christian traditions, it's called Candlemas because in Christian, Judeo-Christian uh, traditions, uh, giving birth was an unclean act, even if it was the Christ, it's still an unclean act. And so there has to be a period of purification before Mary is allowed back in the temple. And so this period between winter solstice and February 2nd, or Candlemas, was called the terror time, not just because it was cold and windy and wolves were about, but because this is the time when matter has to rearrange itself. It's delivered its job as the mother at winter solstice, and it has to re-virginize to be impregnated with the new cycle in the full moons of the spring. So it's interesting that our New Year's Eve, where we make New Year's resolutions, the smack dab in the middle of this time between winter solstice and Candlemas, which is the time for new intentions and new directions. Isn't that February 2nd? Yes, okay. February 2nd. Because mm -hmm. David Copperfield, and I think um, Andrew's going to regale us with this, is going to make the moon disappear on the 24th. And as I said last night, um, NASA's landing its next kind of funded robotic mission on the 23rd. And Copperfield says he's going to make the whole thing go away. I mean, come on. This is all part of this is a change moment for huge possibilities. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we've, we've talked in, in other nights about the symbology of things and how festivals are overlays upon overlays upon overlays of symbology and tradition. You know, the, the Christmas tree, of course, we get from Germany. Uh, it didn't really become popular until Queen Victoria and uh, her consort Albert, her husband, consort Albert, uh, they popularized the Christmas tree, as Queen Victoria also popularized wearing white for weddings. Until Victoria, it was all kinds of colors you could wear for weddings. Oh, my gosh. But well, the, you know, the, the, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. The, the Christmas tree thing, I, I really should, but I have to figure out how to use the camera, take a side-by-side -side picture of what I have in the living room. Because on the left-hand side, next to the big windows, that Robin used to have her plants in, in the windowsill. I have Charlie's Pyramid, the steep Russian-style pyramid in which I'm doing the experiments with the rotating convection clock and the Winston Chimes clock, you know, compared to the quartz clock, that kind of thing. And then next to it, back by the wall, is a regular Christmas tree studded with everything, you know, we used to put on them, including a lot of messages to me and Robin to each other. And they're identical in geometry. I think, there's a Hoagland uh, insight, I think the Christmas tree, in addition to Sagan saying, oh, it was because it was, uh, you know, regeneration in the middle of winter, I think it represents the physics in the physical shape of the geometry of the iconography of how you pass through the hyperdimensional portals around the solstice. Exactly. And, you know, the, the Kabbalistic overlay of that is that the tree symbolizes the light body. And 
originally there were only white lights on the tree symbolizing the chakras, major and minor. No, they, they were, were, they, were they were they were candles in the Victorian era. They were very exactly. dangerous candles. Exactly, and so the white lights were the chakras energized um, and spiritualized. But 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 you know what candles we now know represent, really, don't you? Remember the shows we did a few months ago on on Oppenheimer and our discussion that plasmas from atomic bombs down to candles are conduits between dimensions for consciousness. Well, yes, because if you take the four ancient elements, air, earth, fire, and water, you can die by strangulation, lack of air, but your body's still there. You could drown by water, but your body's still there. Mm -hmm. You can be buried alive in earth, but your body's still there. With fire, everything is translated to another dimension. Well, physically, in fact, there's a scientist, I announced this last night on last night's show, that I'm going to try to get a certain scientist who I know, whose work has turned from geology to this plasma physics. And he totally independently of what I've been saying has connected the idea of consciousness and plasmas and gates. It's going to be a heck of a 2024, I'm telling you. Right. Okay, when do you want to do your big um, uh, moment? Yes, uh, let's let's do it at the bottom of the hour because it'll take a full twenty. Oh, sure, minutes. sure, sure. No, no. I, I, we have a little surprise that George and I worked out. This is a side of her that we have never seen, although there have been hints. So we will we will do that uh, when we uh, uh, reach the bottom of the hour, which is about fifteen minutes away. Um, you want to tell us about your book, Maria? Because I think we're going to change the link so people can see it. What I see of it in the thumbnail, The Secret History of Stonehenge, I love the cover. It's an astonishingly – we never compared notes. That's what I've been describing. The galaxy is connected through Earth at this time like no other time of the year. Yes, I don't think the link's working, so I'm going to have to, uh, I mean, obviously it's well, Christmas me, Day, but me, I, me, I will get oh. in touch with my uh, webmaster. Oh, it was your guy. Oh, okay. I, I think something's gone down. On uh, I've just been on my website, but uh, nonetheless, it will oh. be up there pretty soon. Well, you know, you can, you, you can do that little thingy with the um, uh, left click, and, uh, yeah, left click and, and the wheel, if you have a mouse, and you can make it really much bigger. Uh, there you are. Oh, what a glorious, glorious cover. Who thought up the cover? Uh, well, that was partly uh, Jonathan with some free imagery, and then my graphic designer took it to the kind of uh, high-res level. So oh, it's be, perfect. It, around. it is so absolutely. Is, is that you? No, uh, that's that's not me. That's supposed to represent the kind of feminine side of ancient sites with the moon, which was much older. They were the real older alignments. Ancient sites tend to be lunar. The more kind of Bronze Age sites that are a little bit more modern, they would tend to be the the solar, the the masculine ones, which go in way, way, way back to some of the very earliest alignments, ancient sites worldwide. Wow. I love that cover. Thank you. Amazing, amazing. Okay, let's delve into the book. What do you talk about in the secret history of Stonehenge that we already don't know? 
Well, for example, a lot of these, the reconstruction of Stonehenge done from the 1900s right up to the 1960s, and Avery had that in numerous stone circles as well, they tended to go by models that were created in the 16th and 17th centuries by John Aubrey and William Stukeley, respectively. But there were features at Stonehenge which were written out of history. For example, one of the first excavations at Stonehenge was done by James I of England and his uh, boyfriend, uh, George Villiers, the dashingly handsome Duke of the Royal Architect, Indigo Jones. Those three dug at Stonehenge and they said there was a second altar stone. Not one altar stone, like we're all led to believe today, but two. And they took that to St. James's Palace in London. They recorded that they did that. But modern day archaeologists just put one single stone there. In fact, that second altar stone was being looked for right up into the 1930s by particular archaeologists until the royal door slammed closed. And then nobody has mentioned it ever since. Another feature that was written out of Stonehenge's history was a buried trilithon that is still there today. And because it didn't fit into the model of the five trilithons that William Stukeley and others drew, saying this is what we think Stonehenge looked like two to three hundred years ago, it's still laying in buried today. So why were these features, if you put them back, then Stonehenge starts to look a little bit different from what it does today. Another thing about uh, Stonehenge, which again, written out of the archaeological record, was one of the creators there called uh, John Gore, uh, Tom Gorey, rather. He was at the dig with uh, Professor Richard Atkinson in the 1960s, and they were looking into the Henge Bank, and that's the big white chalk bank that would have surrounded Stonehenge originally, which was about 10 feet tall, so you would not have seen Stonehenge unless you were inside the monument. And, the, like and, the, and the ditch is inside the wall, right? That's right. Uh, Stonehenge, actually, is on the outside. Oh, really? Uh, yes, it's not a henge proper because... Well, symbolically, that. that must be a huge something. Well, absolutely, it is, because they made the bank on the inside. It's the only henge in, the, uh, in England that does that. Well, well that says something shifted, something... The meaning of Stonehenge is not, in this regard, the meaning as these other places. Absolutely, and it's because of uh, a light effect that you can uh, create once the, the bank is uh, on the, the inside. So well, wait, wait. what about surrounding the center of the hyperdimensional link, the stones, inside a chalk resonant hyperdimensional, you know, uh, carbon, uh, you know, um, oh, what is it, calcium carbonate, and you surround it by a ring of water. And you create some kind of weird, weird resonance that the others don't share because that knowledge had been lost by the time they were built. What do you think? Yes, the, the, absolutely. The water table isn't that uh, deep at Stonehenge, so I, I propose it was a, a moat as well, a ring of water. Yes, going yes, and, and, they, and they all brought little urns with water and dumped it in and the, on the ceremonial days or whatever. 
Yes, that may that may be uh, an interpretation, but my point about the the hen's bank. Well, wait. Is, all you have to do is find a pot buried that would have held water, and then the model is confirmed. A lot of pots yes. mean it really is. Yes, yes, uh, that that would be correct. And the, the, when uh, Tom Gorey, the creator of Stonehenge for 25 years, was at the Professor Richard Atkinson, he said uh, that it was not built of chalk rubble. It was cut out solid from the chalk bedrock. Oh, my God. So, like, like, like Horror Castle, like uh, Leeds Scallon did in Florida. Yes. He quarried the castle from the bedrock bed, you know, Neolithic limestone. And I literally did measurements with the Akatron in the pit where all these stones had been removed. No one knows how because he was a 90-pound weakling and never let anybody help him. How did he move them? Interesting. Exactly. So we're looking at the hens being cut out a bit like a kind of pudding bowl, yes. if you will. And uh, that that's what Tom Gorey saw. And he was a widely respected curator. Richard so, Atkinson. So then, the... Then, the next question is, what did they do with the limestone blocks they cut out to make the moat? Did they use yes. them in the circle? Well, the way Tom Gorey was describing it is it, it was cut out in a smooth way to provide the hinge bank from, from the, the bit. And where the actual blocks went probably went over the other side. To well, wait, wait, wait. Why couldn't, why, why couldn't the wall or the, the mound be the blocks? And it's now eroded so it all looks like a continuous, but there were separate blocks with little spaces in between. Yeah, that's how other henges were built. That's not how they the the creator thought that Stonehenge was actually uh, molded hmm. more by a much more cutting device. He mentioned it could have been done with a, an advanced cutting device, unlike being quarried like Avebury and other places, and it was very smooth. Atkinson went on to just completely ignore that. And again, all the other archaeologists were trying to say, let's have another excavation because there's something going on here that's really strange and from that moment in time there has not been another excavation and what, what year was this this was uh in the early 1950s of course they realized they did not dare go any further because the secret would be revealed so it yes. waited until a girl named maria wheatley wrote the secret history of stonehenge <laughs> So I went down to try and track down the uh, the altar stone because Indigo Jones was the very famous architect of James I, who incidentally started all the the witch trial frenzies across the British Isles. And wait a minute, you're like, you're you're saying Inigo Jones, not Indiana Jones. Inigo Jones. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're very very similar. Uh, well, I uh, think one name. was based on the other, don't you think? I, I would. I the would George so. picked uh, Inigo and then made it Indiana. Yes, yes, uh, that's a highly, another secret revealed of Stonehenge. <clears throat> now, when we've got the Henge Bank as one smooth continuum, rather than built in kind of brick block as other henges are. Then, when the the moon is really bright, you've now got a huge white bowl. You've got base of uh, Stonehenge, especially during its earlier phases, as a very smooth white platform. 
which is really going to stand out, not just the bank being white, for example. Then what wait, wait, you mean they stripped the sod off so that it basically was a round circle with geometry? Yes. Sitting raw on the base limestone uh, of the White Cliffs of Dover, many, many yeah, miles away. A chalk bedrock. Yeah, yes, it's yeah. Chalk, chalk bedrock. Calcium what, what carbonate, they, which resonates like hell with the hyperdimensional physics. Absolutely. It's very, very, very re- receptive. And the stones of Stonehenge and Avebury and even in Yorkshire, that's also chalk bedrock. They were carved into the, the socket holes that contained the stones into that chalk bedrock. They're not in the earth. So they're in these solid chalk and the, ch- and the, the sod, as you say, the grass was uh, stripped off and they kept describing okay, how it do we how do, away. How do we know this? We know this because the curator of Stonehenge was the supervisor of the archaeological digs. No, I meant His, I meant two, three thousand years ago when they think Stonehenge was built. How do they know that what phase they stripped off all the sod or the grass so you could basically stand on the on the limestone on the on the uh, uh, you know chalk. Yes, well, they're, they're, they've done some different types of tests, like I mentioned earlier, uh, OSL, and they've looked to radiocarbon dating, like Sam did for the pyramids, which you mentioned earlier. So they've used various different dating methods and said that this this occurred in this phase, which is the early phase of Stonehenge when they stripped away all of the uh, grass and started to carve out the Henge Monument. That was the very first phase of Stonehenge. If they didn't use the blocks from the moat for the wall, where do they put them? That's where there's another Henge, not that far away from Stonehenge. This, uh, Stonehenge is uh, surrounded by several different Henge-type monuments. Right. And that's where the... And Kumalai and the Cursus and all that stuff. I mean, it's a veritable maze of ancient architecture. Exactly. And I'd also, it's tradition in very early medieval times to have chalk to also create homes from, like chalk bricks. And even if you go to the inn that's in the center of Avebury, they have chalk walls there in the pub today. Well, making houses out of limestone, I mean, it's kind of like the ultimate feng shui. Yes, it's it's, it's the chalk here. But, yes, so you you could have had that for building material extracted to other henges that were nearby places and other monuments that haven't survived even. Or, Or, think about this. I'm thinking Stonehenge, based on the work of, um, oh, uh, Monk, Carl Monk, is extraordinarily ancient. The the template, the arc, the um, you know map, the the blueprint, and successive generations have populated it with others with various stones. I'm wondering if when that phase of of Stonehenge was in operation, the they used the blocks from the ditch as vertical stones, and it's so damn old that they were eroded and replaced later by the blue stones and the trilithons and all that, which are more recent, because you can't date stone. 
No, you you can't date Stone. But the the other really remarkable thing about Stonehenge, which was recorded ever since the 12th century by Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote the history of the kings of Britain, was that all this, he kept describing time and time again, he was writing in the 12th century, and these are from much, much older manuscripts, that the stones of Stonehenge were healing. All of them have healing power. Now, right up until the 1950s, and again, we're going back to our witness, Tom mm. Gregory, <laughs> that was uh, there firsthand. He said there used to be queues of people waiting by trilathon 51 and 52. They're numbered by English Heritage and the previous Ministry of Works. Right. And during the 1950s, it wasn't English Heritage that managed the monument. It was the government. Ministry of Works. That's who owned Stonehenge and managed it at the time. It was the government. And Tom Gorey and many others were saying everybody's queuing by the Stone 51 because it produces water from a very deep hole within, the tr with, um, in, within one of the stones of the trilathon. Even in a drought, they were describing this hole would fill up with water and people were going there and putting it on eczema and, you know, putting it on uh, topically on the skin and saying that they were being cured of different ailments. Hmm. And so it became very popular. So what did the Ministry of Works do? They plugged that hole up of, that produced the water with plastic and cement, and it's still plugged up today. But that was renowned for its healing properties. Huh. Well, given the energy that I measured, who knows what could happen if there was a consistent quiet signals of cacophony of tourists hey we are at the um bottom of the hour my guest this morning maria wheatley who's taking us on this amazing journey through time to the origin the very ancient origins of the understanding and i really think i've got something going on here that i don't want to have going on yes i do Okay. Um, sorry about that, guys. I have a little bit of a problem with my sound system. Of course, nothing can happen without those kinds of things happening. So let us do this, okay? Uh, I have to move this, and then I have to move this, and here we will go. Uh, Okay, sorry about that. Oh, well, it's live radio, you know, and it's Christmas Eve, and I had one too many eggnog. Uh, oh, shouldn't I have said that? No, I guess I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> anyway, Merry Christmas, everyone. I have four of them now. Oh, we don't want to do that. No, we want to do this. Thank you. 
to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Christmas Eve of 2023. You recognize that voice in the background? The music of Christmas from 19.5, from the 1950s. Well, we have Georgia Lambert with us, and Georgia has a talent I did not know she has. She has a story to tell us. And so without further ado, Georgia, Magic Christmas Eve. You're on. This is a time for all of you to pretend that you are eight years old again, and you're sitting around the hearth fire listening to an old storyteller. And this is our gift, our Christmas gift to all of our listeners. It's a story of magic and hyperdimensional activity at Solstice. The name of the story is of rare and curious design. Down came the snow, white upon white and white again, a blanket of frozen fleece between all sound on the scarf-wrapped ears of the people of Dublin. Only in the ever-beating heart of the city had the ice been scraped away from the walking stones, and the click-clack-click of the hurrying heels rapped sharply through the yuletide evening. Like a sentinel stood the street lamp on the corner, its gaslight glow reaching outward, forming silver shards of faint color, a glowing halo through the darkening day. Donald O'Corran uncoiled his frozen fingers, cramped now for many hours, over the great love of his life. Roisin Du, the black rose, 
sat silent now upon his lap, her last song still faintly ringing upon the air. "'Tis far too cold for music this late of the day," Donald mumbled to his harp. Out of the crumpled leather bag at his feet, the old man pulled a patchy woolen cloth, wrapped it around his instrument, and slowly rose from his stool in the corner shelter. His corner it was today, leaning against a flight of stony stairs which reached into the mouth of one of the city's finest halls. The outcropping afforded at least some meager shelter. Ah, oh, he cried, as his ancient bones complained of the change of angle. Sore as he was, he reached for the bag and the small tin plate he had set beside it. Only two coins and but one of them mattering, he lamented out loud. Whatever shall we tell our Mirny? Putting the coins in his pocket, the bag on his shoulder, and tucking the three-legged stool beneath his arm, he lifted the small covered harp to his breast. Come do, home it is. He didn't have far to walk this evening, a blessing to his stiff old bones. By the time he had reached the jumbled mews and climbed the long and creaky stairway up to his little room over the print shop, he could hardly direct one shoe in front of the other. Setting the harp down for just long enough to pull at the old iron handle on the door, he sighed in expectation of the welcoming warmth that was sure to be his in a moment's breath. Door swung open, but all was dark within. Only the brief glow of a single candle lit his way inside. Donald, it is you, is it? The edge on his sister's voice gave way when he stepped inside the small circle cast by the lighted tallow. Up she looked at him, her dark eyes still bright and a face bound now with fine feathery lines like a sparrow's feet on a new field of snow. Silver tendrils of hair that once shone like a sable's pelt curled around her cheeks, and as Donald reached to brush one tenderly aside, he felt the damp. Tears, Mirny, he questioned. Oh, Donald, we've used the last of the wood for the stove, and I've naught but this spare piece of dried cheese for your supper. It will be sore cold tonight. Whatever shall we do? Donald reached around the back of the chair and pulled her old maroon shawl up to her chin. Dinna always watch over you, Mirny. We'll make do. We will so. When had he first said those words? It seemed now a lifetime ago. He recalled so easily the day of his parents' funeral, the cold gray wind racing over the hills behind the cottage. He remembered stepping out into the road a week later, the sunlight warming Roisin dew upon his back, and himself ready to make his way in the wide world. Halfway down the lane, just at the turn where the hollyhocks hid the view of the high bell tower of the church, he had heard her. Donald, she called, running up the lane behind him. Don't leave me behind. Donald, I'll follow you. I will so. He swung his little sister up into his arms and pressed her close. All right, then, though I dare say the good sisters will no like you traipsing about the land with not but a harper's luck for your supper. But do not worry, Mirny. We'll make do. We will so. And they had ever since. She looked up at him as she had been, eyes still bright with love and trust. 
Well then, she said, you'd best eat this cheese so you'll have strength to play tomorrow. Donald thrust his hands into his pockets and pulled out the two coins. See, Marnie, just a bit more and we'll have enough for more wood. Tomorrow I'll be home with bread and potatoes and a carrot or two for your soup. You'll see. And so I will, she said. Morning came with a bitter fierceness, born of wind-driven sleet. Its sound woke the old couple huddled together near the water pipe, faintly warmed as it led downward on the wall to the print shop below. Donald rose stiffly and slowly stretched out his hands. Old fingers creaked and not slowly unwound from the cramped clutch of one blanket they had between them. You cannot go on a morn such as this, he turned at Mirny's soft whisper. I must be, old dear. We shall not eat. Besides, look now, it's beginning to clear. Merely leaned to the small dark window and brushed the film away from its face with the edge of her sleeve. Indeed, the sleet had stopped, but the sky was still the color of cold gray iron against the jagged outline of the roofs which faced them. Maybe so, she said, but it could turn fast upon you. Don't be going too far today. You may need to come home quick. Without so much as breakfast tea to temper his belly, Donald took up his harp and his pack and made his way to the door. I'll be back soon, my old dear, and then we'll eat. Mirny patted his arm and set him down the stairs to the street. She kept watch a long time after he turned the corner and was lost to her view. He went slowly, carefully stepping along the ice-covered walkways. Making his way to his favorite corner, he found it claimed already. Green Johnny the Fiddler had early on gathered the few folk braving the streets, his lilting, happy music lifting the spirit, if not the temperature, of the day. Donald was disappointed, but he didn't begrudge Green Johnny. First come, as they say. Besides, every man was entitled to make a living where and when he could. Yet this was the day of the solstice eve. Many shops were closed and there were few about the streets. Where could he go? Donald looked to the right up the main road toward the market cross. Most of the remaining shopkeepers had brought in their wares and were beginning to lock their doors even at this early hour. The square looked desolate and decidedly unfriendly. Donald's old bones were already aching with the cold. I'd best get out of it for a while anyway, he thought. Turning Wittershins, he begins to make his way to the church. That at least is sure to be open. I can stave off some of this chill. Now this lane led to the church all right, but it led in from the north, past the graveyard, dark on a good day, and guarded round with ancient yew trees, their great black boughs stretched over the graves, protecting and hiding the carved stones, and yes, what lay below. As he passed, Donald got the feeling up the back of his neck that he was being watched, a cold, unforgiving watch, a watch without joy, a watch without love, a watch that had never been young. This is the shade of the city religion, he thought. Pious and stern it was, greatly unlike the beliefs of his homeland, where the tinkling of fairy bells could be heard softly on the summer wind. Suddenly, an icy gust caught him unawares and raced down his neck, round his back, 
drawing his muscler more tightly around, he glanced to his left. Leaning into the wind was an old woman, her black skirts whipping about her. Even with her walking staff of gnarled apple wood, she was fighting for her footing against the ice. Donald couldn't see her face, for it was hid behind a bellowing hood. The folds of the fabric were drawn fast about her neck and fastened by a large penannular brooch, a brooch of rare and curious design. Slow as he was himself, Donald hurried toward her just in time to reach out his hand as her foot slipped out from under her. Down she went, and more softly than would have been if not for Donald's care. Are you hurt, Grandmother? he asked, raising her to her feet. Grandmother yourself, she muttered, pulling back her hood to look upon him. Oh, old she was, old and more old. The tanned leather of her face gave way to line upon line, etched so deeply that there was scarce a patch of smooth to be seen. Her mouth had turned completely inward, disappearing upon itself until she spoke. And then the words tumbled out of that ancient cavern like hordes of musky bats fluttering out into the dusky evening. Cracky outcroppings of snowy heather overshadowed the ridges of her brows, lifting gently in the rising wind. Come, said Donald, we must away out of this gale. Let's make for the church. Tis the one place we'll be welcome on such a day as this. It will be the world's fair elk ending before I'll be getting a welcome there, and you can be sure of that. She spoke so softly that Donald missed the steel of her tone. Well then, he said, let's make for the grove across the lane. It'll be a wee shelter, but shelter nonetheless. Leaving the lane, they pushed their way across the flailing grasses into the cover of the trees. Entering the grove, the wind seemed to rein in its bitter whine the sounds seeming somehow far away. Sighing leaves pressed inward to catch their conversation. Surrounding them were oak and ash and thorn, and Donald felt deep down in an old place within himself that he should be wary. Yet reaching for that small brown nut of his being, kept far from all the world, he felt a pinprick, a tickle, a bubble, struggling to free itself. The old woman spoke as she seated itself on a grizzled root, drawing Donald up from himself to the surface of thought. There now, this is better, she wheezed. And what, may I ask, are you doing out in a storm such as this? Donald's indignant complaint fought its way through his ragged breath. How do you know family to watch for you? Family? Yeah, I do have family. Applied slowly, she lifted her chin, and for the first time, Donald beheld her eyes. Now, beheld is perhaps not the right word. Held by them, fixed by them, would be more to the truth of it. Out of that eldritch visage, a face upon which endless winters and summers and winters again had chased each other down the hillsides of her cheeks, shone the oldest and the youngest and the bluest eyes Donald had ever seen. Sharp and clear as the gaze of a falcon, high and wide as the sky to fly in, cool and deep as the sea to fish in, 
rich and true as a dream to dream in were the eyes of the woman before him. Into his very soul they looked, and Donald knew that he had never been truly seen afore until now. Before he could recover from the shock of it all, she raised a bony crooked finger to the harp on his back, which till this moment he had quite forgotten. Are you a harper then? she croaked. I said Donald, recovering himself. Tis my rushing do, my heart of hearts. Many a season we've journeyed together. I fear this cold is no good for her, though I try and keep her warmer and drier than myself. Her strings now crack as do these old joints. He held out his knotted hands to her, and she saw the long twisted nails of one who plays the ancient music. As you saved me from a fall, and as you sheltered me from the wind, I ask of you a third favor. I would have of you one of the old songs, a song of exile, and the bittersweet of the longing and the journeying, and a song of all the freedoms lost in the days when the world was young. Play for me a song of home. Donald's thoughts could not give answer. But his heart leapt up in reply, and so he took his harp, his heart of hearts, and he tuned her to the old tunings, and set his aged fingers upon her strings, and stroked her like a well-loved cat, until she began to purr beside the hearth of his imagination. It was dark when he finished. He didn't remember what he played, nor how he played, only that he had played as he never had before fixed and sustained and fed by the depths of the eyes that held him warm. As he wiped away the tears which had sprung into his own and wrapped his roisin dew and held her close against his back, he spoke for the first time into the faint echo of the music. I must go. Mirny will be waiting. And so she will, replied the old woman. Slowly, with shaky fingers, she unpinned the brooch from her cloak, the brooch of bronze, brooch of rare and curious design. She placed it in the hands of his own. We reward our bards, she said. Donald could not recall their leave-taking, nor how he made his way home in the dark, or how he climbed half-frozen the creaky stairs to which led to the room above the print shop. He pushed open the door to find Mirny looking up at him from the dim glow of the single candle set near the water pipe. Oh, Donald, I was half out of my mind with worry over you. What has happened? Where have you been? Rising, Mirny flung herself into Donald's icy arms. Mary, mother, oh God, you're almost froze, she cried. Come here, next to the warmth of the pipe. I'll get the blanket. Slowly he let her set him down and drape the blanket around his shoulders. As she kneeled in front of him, into his face, illumined by the flickering flame, her eyes grew round and wide. Donald, what has happened? You have the look, Donald. You must tell me. Oh, Mirny, how do I begin? I have had the most extraordinary day. Bit by bit, Donald unfolded the tale of his meeting with the old woman. As he drew to the end of the day's events, he cried, But the music, Mirny, the music, never have I felt its like, not on my very best of days. Try as I can now, I cannot recapture it. I still feel it in my blood, but I cannot hear it in my mind. 
but I know it, Marini. I know it. I do so. Unable to speak, even if she had known what to say, Marini took the leather pack from Donald's hand and lifted his heart from his back. Laying due beside him, she opened the pack, and as if it were called, out fell the brooch, the bronze brooch, the brooch of rare and curious design. It's what she left me, the old woman. Donald reached for it, took it up, and bent over Mirny. I'm ashamed I earned no coin today, and came home to you with no wood, nor bread, nor potato for your soup. Yet, this is what I have, and so this is what is yours. Gently, he pinned the brooch to her old maroon shawl. Tis a glorious fancy, my old dear. It suits you fine. Mirny looked down at the brooch. Awash she was in the pride, the love, and the care he had shown her all these years. Yes, she murmured softly. Tis a fine pin indeed. Never fear, Donald, for tomorrow you'll play, and tomorrow we'll have potato and carrot and onion besides. Now come, sit here next to me. Take up your harp and play for me. Play for us. Play a song of home. Once again that day, Donald lifted his roshin dew to his breast. His fingers began a slow air, a song of green gold hills and old songs from his childhood. The familiar strains of the melody rang softly in the darkened room, sweetly floating outward through the cracks above the window into the velvet night. Mirny closed her tired eyes, settling into the music, allowing it to conjure up her home, the cottage, the flowers of her youth. She had worn flowers then, brought by village lads, shyly left on windowsills or handed bravely after school. There were meadows of flowers, clover, heather, and golden bloom, garlands worn on May's first worn, tumbled roses climbing up walls to her narrow window, buttercups to look within and find her true love. But there had been no true love for Mirny. Oh, yes, there was once Ian, the fisher boy, who said he'd wait for her to grow. But off she went with Donald, following the road and its fortunes, until suddenly, one day, she had looked into a battered tin mirror and found she was old. But, oh, she remembered the flowers. Strange, she thought, that music could bring it all back. She could almost smell the flowers. The scent was so real, and the room seemed warmer somehow. No, she was quite sure now. She did smell flowers, and the room was warmer and lighter. She opened her eyes and gasped at what confronted her. Donald was sitting in a meadow amid mounds of lilies and wild roses. The air was gentle, honey-sweet, and a soft golden light sprinkled the hillside. He played, eyes closed, rocking back and forth slowly with the tune. About his knees danced and skipped and pranced the most beautiful little beings Mirny had ever seen. Fair they were, and perilous too, and she knew them for the good people, which is what the wee folk are called by those who know them. The music lifted, and faster Donald played, and as he played, the knots in his old hands unwound, his back straightened, and he opened his eyes in awe and wonder. Mirny, he cried, 
for sitting across from him, his sister glowed with wondrous, most living light. No longer did the wisps of hair shine silver upon her forehead. Dark as a sable's pelt, the curls ringed her lovely face, and her swan-colored skin had melted into smooth. Don't stop your playing, Donald, she called. Rising up from her chair, she joyfully leapt into the ring of fairies as the little beings began to circle round him. What is this wonderment? Are we dreaming? Donald dare not voice the thought aloud lest he disturb the magic. Yet with the silent forming of the question, the golden air began to shape itself upon the hillside. Gently the swirls began to form, and presently Donald beheld the form of a woman of wondrous beauty and enchantment. Proud, her hair flying in the shining wind, and her cloak streaming out behind her, she spread her ivory hands over the hills and meadows in ancient blessing. The old ones, Donald thought, guardians and keepers of the sacred hills and silent places. The glorious lady looked now at Donald, and Donald looked back, unafraid, into the oldest and youngest and bluest eyes he had ever seen. Sharp and clear as the gaze of a falcon, high and wide as the sky to fly in, cool and deep as the sea to fish in, rich and true as a dream to dream in were the eyes of the woman before him. She smiled a shimmering smile, a golden smile, a smile as wide as all the world. The birds of the upper air, their feathers, all the colors of the rainbow, swept down to sing the song that Donald had made. The golden woman looked down, and all about the hem of her cloak came alive. And Donald, all of a sudden, looked upon all his old friends, playmates from long-ago childhood, and those who showed grace and charity to the harper upon the road. There walked those he had helped and those he had known and loved his music. And coming now down the hillside through the flowers, Ian held his hands outstretched. He called, Come now, Mirny. "'Tis time to join the dance,' his voice wavering in the brightening air. Crowned with apple blossoms, Mirny turned to him. She placed one hand in Ian's and reached toward Donal and held out her other. The air sang again, "'We repay our bards.' The golden voice flowed like honey around him. Donal rose, took up his Roisin dew, clasped his sister's outstretched hands, and the three of them went up from the hill of flowers and into the dance of dancing. It is said in later days that the owner of the print shop, hearing no noise above him for almost a week, dares, pushed open the door with the worn iron handle, entered the little room with the film rubbed off the window, and a single candle burned to a stump set by the water pipe against the wall. But no sign of the old couple ever did they find. Not a shawl, not a harp, not an old leather pack. Nothing but an old brooch in the middle of the floor. A bronze brooch. A brooch of most rare and curious design. Merry Christmas. Thank you. 
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. everybody on this now Christmas night and morning Sunday grading into Monday Christmas Day of 2023 here in the land of enchantment Georgia that was absolutely marvelous absolutely marvelous I wrote that for my daughter many years ago oh I wondered because you didn't introduce it it was you because your intonations you're pausing your brogue. <laughs> oh, perfect. Absolutely perfect. Maria, what do you think of it? Did we lose Maria? She no, may be. So, there no, she. sorry. It's, I, I was absolutely charming. A, a delight to hear. Oh, thank you. I, I was a storyteller at the Renaissance Fair for years and have held for the last decade uh, a virtual world presence as a storyteller. So I have a whole book of those types of stories my 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 amazing and 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 you know marie she's a very accomplished fine artist we are blessed kinthea and her and see now we have to have kinthea tell a story (laughs) (laughs) kinthea's typing okay she can open her mic if she wants merry christmas kinthea oh one word caps with exclamation point for you, Georgia. Bravo. Oh, thanks. She, I, I had to rush a little bit to fit it into the time frame. But she's obviously go. lost her voice. Oh, poor. If Andrew is waiting in the wings, Andrew has a story. I don't think he's going to read it, but he's going to tell it, which is so appropriate for tonight. Just so appropriate. So, Andrew, are you there? 
Unmute. Unmute. See, who talked to him last? I thought it was Kinthea who said that he would be standing by. I'm not seeing any. This is real-time radio, folks. This is Christmas Hello. Eve. There you are. Ah, hi. It's Mr. Curry. Now, um, when I set this section up, I was thinking we would drop in on the average Canadian family on Christmas Eve, and I'll bet you're wrapping presents, right? <laughs> you know, yes, I am, and Merry Christmas, Richard. So this is going to be a, an interview with the average man on the street who's actually in his den on the Internet. Um, what does Christmas mean to you, Mr. Curry, and average family? Well, I mean, for me, I am, I mean, I was baptized a Christian and uh, raised in the Christian faith. And so for me, it has, a, you know, very profound meaning in terms of uh, the Christ child. And um, it's it's not something that we've really pushed hard on our children, but we acknowledge it. My wife is Catholic. I mean, we she's not a practicing Catholic. So there is a Christian tradition here. Um, so it's a very holy time. Um, Richard, it's, I mean, we, you know, there's all the trappings of Santa and all that sort of fun stuff as well, but the core for us is, is the meaning of Christ in this time. And, you know, and, and as we heard tonight, there's a, there's a long tradition that streams through time. And, um, you know, we even have to wonder, Richard, if it goes for further back into our solar system past as well. But yeah, for us, it's, uh, definitely Christ centered. Hmm. So this is a very, very special, uh, Antithesis, antecedent to Christmas, which of course technically has now begun here, but you still got another hour to wrap presents if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> Do your yeah, kids get up in the crack of dawn or in the middle of the night and kind of creep down the stairs and look and see, you know, how big the hall is under the tree? Well, definitely. I mean, they're getting older, and my youngest, who, you know, he's, I think he's just playfully hanging on to believing this stuff but um yeah they they look and they then they pester us to wake up so it's like but the older ones are they're they're pretty much just happy to be with family and and friends on on christmas but there's still a little bit of the little kid in all of them and and you know what i always come back when um you know there's a discussion of sort of santa claus right i i had this vivid dream i was very very young i i think i might have been about eight or nine at the time and i remember I woke up, I, I had a very small room. It was a little room up in the, well, almost like an attic. And I remember it was a very quiet night in my dream. And I got up, I looked out the window, and there in the distance, I saw I saw Santa with his reindeer. I mean, it was literally like one of those dreams what? that, I'm serious, Richard. It was. It felt so real when I was little. And when I woke up and I remembered the dream, I, I mean, I knew it was a dream, but part of me was like, did did I see something? Because it was fleeting. It was fleeting, but it was, um, you know, it's it's that magic, right? And um, it, it's a time of the year where everything's a little more heightened, and I think in a very positive way. It always feels very calm at this time of the year. At least we try to be, right? And it is a, a, a time of um, of fellowship and getting together, no matter what your faith is. And we 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 sell, usually celebrate our Christmas Eve actually with our our friend Arun has been on the show, and they're Hindu, uh, but he was away um, on a business trip, so we're gonna we've sort of postponed our our um, celebrations for a little later. So even in other traditions, I mean, Christmas is just seen as a time to really another festival to celebrate. I'm now. telling you, it's the time of year, guys. Yeah. It's the physics. It's the alignment. It's so 
I mean, now now I understand why viscerally, all the way back to my earliest memories of Christmas, this was not because of the presents or stuff. It was something about it was different. It was yeah. It was people acted like people. Yes. Even people who were not people during the rest of the year, they at least made a pretense. Of course, now we're past pretense. Boy, are we past pretense. I can't see pretense in my rear mirror anymore. Yeah. Okay, you have got a story that I really felt we should tell tonight as a prelude to some of the things we're going to talk about next Saturday night, which is New Year's Eve Eve. Yeah, New Year's Eve Eve. Um having to do with the president's artifact and the moon and other gifts NASA has bequeathed us. You've seen, of course, the recent image I sent around of Europa. Yeah. Good yeah. grief. Yeah, but Richard, do you, do, you, do you think that's really geometry? Or do you think that's just the, the cut lines in the ice? No, 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 no. It's shattered buildings, very, very old, covered with sulfur dust from Io. Oh, and the dark thingies with the bright little streaks in, in the middle, yeah, those are the cracks in the ice shell around Europa over the ocean, which is 100 miles down. Right. And you can tell how old those ruins are because of the cracks. What high-tech well, civilization would build on a surface if it cracked in 10, 10 years? Try maybe like 10 or 100,000. Well, in our model, in, in your model, in the model that I, I agree with, I mean, we talk about you know, our entire solar system being riddled. It was redesigned. Yeah. yeah. You want to bet it was around December 25th? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so tell your story, because this is really amazing as a prelude to what's going to happen next Saturday night. Yeah, well, before we go on, um, the idea of Europa being... Well, having ancient, uh, uh, you know, like buildings on it, it's just, it's very much the snow globe. So it's another apropos little Well, do you remember when they finally, and it was, um, oh, oh, who was that brilliant actor who played uh, Jarrell? Um, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, yes, I'm thinking, yeah. you know, on the waterfront. Marlon Brando was the perfect Jarrell, perfect. But do you remember the planet they were on when... Yeah. It was doomed by the catastrophe of, of the red giant, which their son had evolved into. What did it look like? Well, it looked like an ice planet. It looked, it like, looked Europa. like Europa. Yeah. yeah, you're right, actually. Except it was white, and Europa is kind of sulfurish because it's covered with drifts of sulfur from the Io volcanoes being transmitted through the magnetosphere of Jupiter, the, the, the Jupiter wind which blows a lot of that stuff from Io and escapes into space. And it's drifting around in the inner Jovian system, and it falls on Europa. So what's going to be amazing someday, remember there's a mission called Europa Clipper, yes. which is, and it's not launched yet, I think it's about a year or two from launch. It'll get there by the end of the decade. Too bad they don't have, a, what's his name, little engine that can up in Earth orbit. It could get there in you know a few months. That's the revolution in space that we're looking at, waiting tick, tick, tick for the guys at IVO to turn on their super hyperdimensional space drive. Anyway, um, given the background of Christmas we've discussed, 
what a if anything in terms of Maria's you know conversations and now of course Georgia, what would you like to comment on before we segue into this pretty amazing story? Well, just one more note on uh, the, the Clipper uh, voyage. Yeah, and everybody, everybody should look into this. It's I actually okay. So there is a program by NASA that you can basically sign your name and get it uh, carved or etched or however the process. I mean, it's it's very tiny. I think Richard. Well, they but put it on a micro dot. We <clears throat> have your name put on the spacecraft when it goes on its mission, and it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, they're very much trying to appeal to youth and children because they talk on their website about, you know, directly speaking to teachers and saying, you know, you can use this as a learning experience. It's, and it's it, it, Yeah, it, they're, they're very much priming the youth and the, and the youngsters. Yep. But it's pretty cool, Richard. Oh, it's it, amazingly it's message, cool. Message in a bottle. I recommend everybody look it up. It's a lot of fun. Get your name on it. Even though it's a micro dot, you're still, I mean, you're there, right? So Do they <laughs> accept dogs and cats? <laughs> well, that I don't know. <laughs> That's, well, maybe it's on the website, or if it isn't, it should be, because remember, dogs and cats are family, too. Well, there is a an American poet who is including her poem, um, which also will be put in one of these micro dots. So there is a whole... Um, you know, there's a whole uh, uh, not agenda, like an impetus or a, a program for this thing, and, and they really want people involved, which is really interesting, and it kind of circles into what I wanted to talk about tonight. Now, you did ask me one question before you wanted me to move on. What was it, Richard? It was about everybody's commentary tonight. Yeah, I was just wondering because to me, I really, really resonate with this time of year, and I've felt forever that it was appropriate that. You know, we, we celebrate a new president at the turn of the year, used to be in March, you know, near the equinox. Now it's near the winter solstice. We know from our measurements that these alignments are not a magic night or day. It's a window. So all this incredible connected to higher powers, higher dimensions, higher consciousness, God, God's birth you know, and super being born into three dimensions. I mean, you can't get more Jarrell and Superman than that, right? So yeah. that's what I wanted you to think about and maybe talk about because, you know, of all our faculty, um, Andrew is not humble artist that he pretends to be. Andrew <laughs> thinks very, very deeply. Well, I tell you, Richard, I don't know. I mean, not to get super personal, and I don't want to oh, come weird on. any. <laughs> it's Christmas. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get your audience getting thinking I'm weird. But, um, you know, another thing with this time of the year, and I, and I noticed it, you know, even in myself, a, a very much a, a shift, uh, let's put it this way, in, in my hungers. Oh. And I don't mean, I don't mean food. Right. And, and I noticed as we're entering this state, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being really, I'm, I'm being a, I'm revealing myself a little here, but I'm telling you, I felt a real shift in my, I'll just say it, carnal desires. And and it, it, it's almost like something not flattened, but just sort of evened out and just said, you know, this is a time not, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I know it may sound strange. I'm sorry to, to, to kind of go there, but it, it is like a, like um something that just settled. It um, sounds just, like a frequency shift. It, I, I Georgia? tell you, Richard, you know, lower chakras, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, again, you know, this is the time when the cycle of matter completes itself and there's this sort of pause. And then there's the flurry of matter rearranging itself so that it can start out fresh at candle mass. So there is this natural sort of pause at this time. Well, it's you know? like the Ouroboros. Remember the ancient serpent eating its tail, which uh, uh, David Flynn brilliantly mapped onto the Milky Way, which is why I hope Ron's listening. The Mayans, you know, exhibited the dark rift of the center of the galaxy as the beginning and the end of the snake, the Ouroboros eating its tail. To me, it's the December winter solstice because we know aligning that four million solar mass black hole with the sun, which is the biggest ball of plasma in our neighborhood. If plasmas are conduits between dimensions, it makes sense that the, the Egyptians saw each star, each point of light as a beacon of hyperdimensional connectedness to the higher realm, whatever. This goes back to their depictions of Sirius slash Isis slash the Virgin Mary, anyone giving birth to the sacred. See, that's the gestalt that we're all instinctively connecting to, which is where I go to Maria and the ancients didn't have to measure it, although they may have had, had information passed down from the previous really high civilization that measured this stuff, but they felt it not just in their calcium carbonate tetrahedral bones, but they felt it in their souls. And that's why this is a time of huge decision. The end of the beginning and the beginning of the end in an endless loop, except this year, 2024, is going to be for all the marbles. And, you know, I would say to Andrew that I don't think it's so much a flattening of the lower as an enhancement of the higher ah. because because this is a sacred time and our aspirations naturally go to those higher realms yeah and That's i could because we're reminded we're reminded of the gift of the christ child whatever you call it um at this particular time of year yeah well it's it's definitely something that i I really noticed, and it was um, it's beautiful. And uh, my wife can wait. <laughs> but anyways, no. I but Richard, I you know it's funny about this this whole uh, the Clipper uh, uh, spaceship um, attaching names to it and bringing it to a. I'm sure George got George got a lot to say about that. But it's something that I uh, it kind of uh, reminded me of something that happened to me. I, I again I related this story I think last week or the week before about recently having visited Las Vegas being at the MGN Grand Casino which by the way when you first walk in the hotel casino there's a massive golden lion looking at you it's amazing <laughs> yeah but in we went to see I've never seen a Vegas show well remember I, what is Christ called the lion of Judah mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. And the well, lion is a symbol of the heart chakra. Yeah, and you are in the heart of it there. Um, and the lion has a big sure. copycat on Mars between hominid and feline. It's all the it, – this gestalt is so overwhelmingly obvious now. Yeah. Well, we went to this – I'd never been to a Vegas show before. We, I was there uh, for a baseball tournament, actually, but my wife really wanted to go and see a show. And I'll really relate this fast because I already covered this no, ground it's, before. No, it's fine. It's fine. 
Well, we. She said, I, you know, when I when she was in the Philippines, because my wife is originally from the Philippines. She came here when she was nine, but when she was a little girl, at eight, she used to just be enthralled with Copperfield's um, performances back in the Philippines, and and uh, she was actually crying in, in the theater when when this was all happening, because it was just bringing home to her, just a, you know, a lot of memories and fondness. You mean when it. David Copperfield was doing his show? Yeah, yeah, it was a real moment for her. Actually, it was very emotional for me too because of what he was doing, and that's what I wanted to kind of talk about because I'd kind of glossed over, you know. Well, no, I mean, I, I sketched out what we had sort of seen, and and I and I discussed that a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't realize something that David was doing, and he's been doing this show for a few years now, I think. I, I did a little review to see what other people were saying, and some people were very critical of the show, saying, "Oh, he's just sort of." Uh, you know, just kind of um, punching his ticket and not really t- paying attention. And, blah, 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 blah. and I thought, oh, wow, that's, I mean, I've never seen him before live, so I, I can't, I don't have a comparison. It used to be called phoning it in. Phoning it for in, actors, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't get that sense. I mean, I think he's a little older, a little more more of a statesman, and he's a little, probably a little more tongue-in-cheek, and, you know, there's probably a little bit of uh, irony in his voice and stuff, because he's seen a lot, but the but the man is a billionaire, you know. He is he is a thing, and he's definitely sending messages. So what I wanted to just really uh, outline was what we went through. So when we first came in, one of the first things he did is he said um, uh, he's going to ask us to put all our phones away, and, and it was due to copyright issues. And also, I don't think he wants pictures of you know his tricks going on because you might catch something and then it becomes a whole you know big problem for him so one of the things slow down the video (laughs) exactly (laughs) so one of the things first things he did richard said he asked everybody if they wanted to to pinpoint where they were from on the planet and so you could write you know your city your province your state or your country whatever and then you you enter it and you would send an email and then a few minutes later up popped the screen on the stage which showed the entire planet and all the dots of all the people inside the audience so not only had we made a connection with our persona like our person on on at least the digital level through our cell phone but we were now identified like literally identified where we live i mean you didn't have to do it if you didn't want to but you know you do it for so it was a glittering constellation on the screen yeah exactly and then um we were asked to make this um, hand gesture, and I don't Uh-oh. have it up. Yeah, it was very – he kind of said, no, don't worry. It's not an Illuminati thing. <laughs> but, you know, Richard, it was two hands together, and he said it came from his father. His father has long passed away, but he said it was a, a secret gesture that he and his father shared. And it very much looks like an upside-down heart, but it also looks like a pyramid when you make the gesture. So many, many people in the audience held up their hands, and we did too, and gestured back to him. So we all did this sort of secret gesture. Do you remember and, the old uh, folk tale from kids? Here's a church, and here's a steeple. Precisely. Look inside and see all the people. It, it was a pyramid in your hands, yes. Yes, yes, Richard, with a heart in the middle, inverted, but it was yep. there. And then at one point in the performance, he uh, had, because this was very much about his father, like he, uh, you know, I, I compared it to, um, you know, in Shakespeare's early plays, you know, he had all this sort of swashbuckling and tragedies and wars going on and, you know, like high emotion and stuff, but in 
in Shakespeare's later plays, I mean, whoever Shakespeare was, uh, this person very much had a stage in his in his later time of reconciliation in 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 the plays. You know, very much about family and and finding you know people finding each other and finding really their hearts coming back to the heart. And I noticed that with David is that it was I mean I, again I don't have I don't know all his early stuff but I get pictures of him as a young man he's you know a dashing guy very heroic and by the way Richard there was a, a very interesting connection if I may do a side note. There was a show, it only ran one season, I believe it was 1974, I could have the date wrong, it was called The Magician. Oh, yes, yes. Do you remember the actor? Played by one of my favorite actors, and I'm trying to remember his name. Bill Bixby. It was, wasn't Gene Barry, was it? No, Bill Bixby. Bill Bixby, that's right, The Martian. Yes, Bill Bixby. Richard. Yes. <laughs> Bill Bixby, who played in My Favorite Martian, who was the human that made connection with this. Well, he actually played the kid. It was, uh, what's his name, who played the Martian? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was the young man, but it yeah. was, it, yeah. And then he, he did this one year, um, uh, sorry, it was a one season run called The Magician, where he played a very, like a playboy magician. Do you know and, this was based on an old Hollywood B film, which had uh, Robert Young? As oh. a magician, and he would solve mysteries yes. and murders, and it all look creative you know, AI notwithstanding. Producers in Hollywood have stuck on a few plots, and they do them end over end over end over end. They can't think of something different, so you can see these echoes through old movies, medium movies, modern movies, ancient television, fifties television. In other words, they just recycle. So yeah, the magician. Bixby played the Robert Young character from the uh, RKO films. Yeah, and he was a philanthropist, much like a Bruce yes, Wayne. secretly millionaire. Yeah, and it was it's very and much... And you know where I he mean, performed? Uh, it was, I thought it was Los Angeles. No, no, was, Hollywood. Oh, okay. The Magic Castle. The Magic Castle, that's And right. Paul Davids took me and Robin several times to the Magic Castle, and we watched Paul do magic, and we watched the the stage magicians, and we had dinner, and the magic, yeah, that was Bill Bixby's modern platform in the TV show, The Magic Castle. Well, David Copperfield is also a philanthropist. He actually uses his magic in therapy for, you know, uh, I think it's autism, but I'd have to dig a little deeper. But he also is doing, and we're going to come to this later, but he's, he does philanthropic work with, right now, when we talk about the moon and how he's going to make it disappear on the 24th, and again, we'll come to that, um, he's working with um, Save the Children Foundation. Oh, so it, wonderful. And Richard, there's another weird um, association with, with magic and magicians, but um, um, New Horizons, Dr. Alan Stern, if you you know sometimes sort of drop into his the unmanned twi- spacecraft got, went to Pluto and then just keep on going. Yeah, well, he is very much a magic enthusiast. Oh, He's like, really? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. He, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very interesting. As I used to say, the plot gets lumpy. Yeah, it it does. <laughs> but anyways, coming coming back to my to my little journey. So at one point during the performance, David. Um, Basically, David was estranged. David Copperfield was estranged from his father. Now, David wasn't born with that name. Well, his father actually, was in the military, wasn't he? That's right. He was. He was in the army, and he was stationed just after the war in Roswell. Oh in no! Yep. And so, in this performance that he did, this magic show, that we there, there's this little 
well, it's an animatronic puppet, but it's this little tiny childlike alien creature that comes to um, David, and then David has this conversation with him, and it, and it revolves very much – before that, it revolves around his father, and then we kind of focus on this alien, and I'll get to that. But at one point in his performance, he enters a home movie, which is on the screen. Now, how he does it, I can't remember the illusion, but he disappeared from around the crowd. Somehow the lights went out or something, and he just disappeared. And he appeared on the movie screen approaching his father, and it was like a, it was like a home movie of his father and his mother when they were very young. And his father looks up and sees him, and now it's like a, he's there in the film, and he, and he gives his father a, a heartfelt um, hug, and they speak. So wait, and, wait, this is really high-tech AI-generated simulation. Yeah, and he... Holy it, it, cow. Richard, it was entering the underworld and meeting somebody important to bring back the knowledge. This is what we're doing. I mean, you can see where I'm going with this right now, right? Um, and then, as I say... This well, wait, wait, how do we know his father was in the underworld? Well, at that point, his father has passed away. What I'm saying is yeah, the symbolic... Why, are you talking up or down? Well, <laughs> you mean the other world? Okay, other the hyperdimensional world. world. You're we're not assigning heaven and hell to this stuff. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. And then we run into this little alien that has come to Earth to spread a message of love, and he feels he's failed, and he's now waiting for his mothership or the father to bring him back. Which in the in the performance, a giant. UFO appears above all of us and then flies out and then the, the you know this little tiny alien physically sort of, in the theater it comes in the theater yeah it just it's there the lights go out and then it's right there I mean I could have thrown my phone at well I wasn't allowed to have my phone in my hand <laughs> I could have thrown my popcorn at it <laughs> you know wow. but yeah and then it flew out and then it goes you know and then again they have this video showing it it's flying out beside the MGM Grand Grand and I mean, it's not, but, it, but that's what it did. And then the alien is sent off by David back up to heaven. And, mm. <laughs> and um, Or wherever they come from. Well, and Richard, throughout the performance, David talked about his childhood, and in particular, a toy Tyrannosaurus Rex that he used to play with, like when he was a really little kid. It was one of the things that he just loved and adored, and then through time, it, it disappeared like you know, Do you remember people. that Gene Shepard film, something about the kid in mid- Midwest who wants a, a, a BB gun for Christmas? And oh, it's, Christmas it's all story. a narration. It's called A Christmas Story. That's right. Okay. Yeah. This sounds like Copperfield's version with better effects. He really is pacing and parsing out a narrative. And when people, as I said, when I read some of the, re- the reviews, people are like, that was a really strange show. It was really strange. Like, they couldn't figure it out. And I well, they were looking really, for entertainment, and it's much, yeah, much more. Way more, Richard. Because we end, we end the show on basically – Oh, we are at the bottom of the hour. Ah. Anyway, we end the show. Let us uh, uh, do this, and we will end the show in the next half hour. You're on the other side of midnight. We're right at the end of the program, and we'll come back with Andrew's ending. After this, welcome to Christmas 2023. A lot is going to happen. What sign it is, is I think up to all of us. We need to focus. This is not the world. 
we want. Let's focus on the one we do want. Merry Christmas, everyone. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. to this last half hour of our Christmas Eve special, grading obviously into Christmas Day, Christmas morning. It's very dark out there, but the stars and Venus are brilliant in the brilliant skies of the land of enchantment. So, Andrew, the end of the story. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, throughout the performance, he kept referring to his Tyrannosaurus Rex. A little toy and he had pictures of it and he had it on the film and you know it was very much like a talisman throughout the entire performance because it kept appearing it kept sort of grounding us back to his childhood and the time when his father was the one who really inspired him to move forward with his magic because at the age of 12 he had thrown all of his models and all of his plans away and the next morning he found it all put back on his bed after when he had come home from school and it was his father who did it and in the end he says, I've never been able to find it, so I thought I would make it. And then the lights go down, 
And then he uses one of these really amazing, what they call shadow boxes, and it's to make these large objects appear. And I'm not sure how the whole process works. Well, out of this shadow box, Richard, comes a full-size skeleton Tyrannosaurus Rex, fully animated. Oh, my gosh. And because it was roaring, and because there were bright lights around it, and like a fog machine, it literally struck me like a dragon-breathing fire. Oh. And that... Yeah, and that to me is, I mean, you know, I mean, Maria can, and Maria and, and Georgia can speak way better than I can about this, but in, in Western tradition, we think of it as sort of evil, but in the Eastern tradition, it's a symbol of transformation. Richard, I really think that what we were going through in that performance was an initiation and a series of rituals. I, it really, when I reflect on it, I really believe it was something like that. And now we have David Copperfield wanting to well he he's been practicing it apparently but he is going he declares he is going to make the moon you said this on february the 24th a day after the parrot what the paragon well nasa sending through a company called astrobiotic a private enterprise mission back with a lot of nasa money to land the first commercial u.s mission on the moon uh called peregrine yeah and a peregrine Georgia is a falcon. It's a blue yes, falcon, which I wrote about when I was ten on my old mother's Underwood black and white typewriter. A falcon is going to the moon to land roughly where the astronauts of uh, Destination Moon in 1950, the George Powell film, where they uh-huh. landed in the northern upper part of the moon, almost at the edge. And they're going to do it on the 23rd. And on the 24th, David Copperfield says he's going to make the whole damn moon just disappear. Well, Richard, even more intriguing. Well, I can we get it be more intriguing. <laughs> is that the launch date of the Peregrine is uh, January, January 8th. January, and on January 6th is Epiphany. Or, I mean, Georgia, you probably do, again, better than me, but it's it's when the Magi, the three kings, come and visit Christ, it's the... It's having the, followed the star. Having followed the star, and Jesus is recognized as God's representative on earth, as God on earth. And it's, and I was reading about the dates, and I let me read you a little thing here. The Epiphany date can vary by culture and specific religion. Most commonly, the Epiphany is recognized on January the 6th. Or the first Sunday falling between January 2nd and January 8th. So this peregrine launch, Horus, is yes, it's Horus, much, of course. Pretty much on Epiphany. Now, At least, let me interrupt. I don't know whether everybody's kind of kept pace with our lunar Stonehenge modeling and analysis, but apart from Maria's sterling work. Uh, Greg Ahrens and I figured out and nailed it down and confirmed that roughly 30,000 years ago, give or take, which is our, for the last high-tech Earth-born civilization that inhabited the solar system, left stuff on Mars, left stuff on the moon, left stuff everywhere. And then we experienced an incredible fall, the fall, and we've been building back up for the last 6,000 or so years. So the alignment, the key alignment of the lunar Stonehenge between the the building 
that being photographed close up that looks like a damn, you know, sarcophagus across the chair in the middle of the circle of whatever chairs on Earth, chairs on the moon, which I think represents ISIS, aimed at the setting of the constellation of Osiris from that vantage point on the moon 30,000 years ago. And the rising point at 113 degrees is measured by another set of alignments across the center of the circle of the same objects on the moon at the Apollo 12 landing site. Do you begin to see a master plan? And don't everybody talk at once. Well, I do. I do, Richard. And if I may, before um, the ladies come in, I want to read something that they wrote. Yeah, we got about really, 20 minutes, so let's portion they, our time. They wrote, this in, they wrote this in the um, the type, or in the chat box when we were speaking when I was talking about my David Copperfield. So in reference to the to the hand gestures, and this is what I was thinking about, because remember, David David is Jewish, and he originally came from New, from oh, New Jersey. Oh, then he read Stan's book. Daniel yeah. read Stan's so this, book. This is what Georgia said. The Spock live long and prosper is one half of a two-handed gesture that makes a pyramid gesture, a gesture ah. used by a rabbi to open a sacred-slash-hyper-dimensional window. Now, and Maria, we know the gene took the Vulcan, Spock mythologies and culture and all that from ancient Jewish tradition. Yep. And then Maria chipped in, and I'm sorry to take your thunders, ladies, but <laughs> I'm going to do it. Druids use a fourfold element hand gesture to balance and return to heart as well. Don't you love it when a good plan comes together? <laughs> George Pardon you know, would say that. Go you ahead. Know, you know that uh, Andrew is mentioning uh, epiphany. In the Bible, there are two versions of the birth of Jesus. The one has to do with the story of the shepherds in the field and the animals in the manger and all of that. And the star. That's, don't forget the star. Right. That's symbolic of the first initiation, of the heart chakra. The second version uh, in a different gospel talks about the wise men. And the wise men bring the three gifts that complete the persona. Gold, symbolic of the riches of the physical. Frankincense, the uh, incense that purifies the emotional or astral aura. And the, Frank, uh, and myrrh, the, the clarity and bitterness of the mind. And this represents the initiation of the adult son, which is born within the heart center of the head. And so when Andrew is talking about David Copperfield mm. doing sort of a re initiation by by watching uh, a play or something unfolding, remember that's what a lot of the Masonic uh, rituals uh, do. That there are some where you're, the candidate is physically walking around the floor, but in some of the higher initiations, the initiation is watching a play, a tableau. And copper is a transitional ritual metal, which the NASA folks made the entire front of the deep impact spacecraft that smashed into the first asteroid to measure, you know, actually it was a comet, to measure what would happen several, several years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And gold 
is a hyperdimensional transitional metal reflecting symbolically a the timelessness of gold it lasts forever it does not corrode nothing happens to it you can dig up 10 million year old gold and it's just like it was minted yesterday if it's in a minted form gold is a transitional hyperdimensional metal because the atomic weight of the predominant isotope is 195 19.5. And let's not forget the name that, that Copperfield took, David Copperfield. Yes. Which is Dickens very, very famous book and and, and why did Dickens sure, do it? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Dickens was pretty plugged into he was, a lot yeah. of this esoteric. Yep, yeah, yep, exactly. Yep. So let's uh we've got about uh, fifteen minutes, actually more like ten. Uh who wants to wrap up things that they said earlier that they want to put a bow on we got time maria yes i'd just like to say talking about horus egypt and isis and the moon it's interesting to note that last year at edvu temple in egypt which is horus's sacred temple mars aligned perfectly between the two pylons that's the large area that comes out of the temple perfectly as if to activate which was noticed by chris o'kane who did all of the astronomical calculations for robert Breval and graham hancock oh. Oh, my. Wow. My, my. So the aptness of launching a mission to the moon named Falcon on January 8th, arriving the night before Copperfield makes it all go away. How do you think? See, no one's going to be satisfied if he does this on a screen. You can't promise to make the moon disappear and not make the moon disappear. Well, Richard, if I could chip in really quick, and I know I've blabbled a lot. So no, no, it's a, no, come on, come on. Well, well, one of the things that I, again, I might have brought it up on the show, but I'll bring it up again because of just what Maria said about activating a temple. Now, that kind of makes me go ding-a-ling-a-ling because, well, maybe ding-a-ling, maybe ring-a-ring. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I am a ding-a-ling, but, but I've, I've said to folks, I've said to Richard in the last couple of years, I am getting the sneaking suspicion that either our sun is is reflecting in a more interesting way off of a full moon in the middle of summer, or our moon is looking somehow turned on, like it's activated, like it's brighter, like, brighter, Richard. Okay. And the light that's cast down onto, or that that's coming down in into the, onto a two a.m. backyard is absolutely extraordinary. The definition of of, of shadow from the moon through the trees i've never seen such such crisp shadows on the floor of my yard and i and it's it's a wonderment and i've i just it, intuitively it feels like the moon much like the way maria is saying that a, a temple on earth was activated the same thing is happening to the moon i have no way to prove that other than my well let me give you some more may data I add, sorry may i just yeah, add go, that go, we are go. heading towards a very sacred time for the moon in 2024 and 2025 where it's going to reach its most northerly and its most southerly alignment so this only happens every 18.61 years so shadows will get brighter shadows will get longer because it's reaching its maximum and that activates so many different sacred sites will Worldwide, including the pyramids. But I think what Andrew's talking about is just looking at it, it looks brighter. Yeah, it will do as it reaches its most northerly. It's going to be really, really bright in about two years' time. Well, so he yeah, lives further. I mean, you're, you're in Vancouver. 
give or yeah. take. So you're north. You're well north of New York City. What's what's your latitude? It's uh, just above the 49th. So you're really up there, and if it moves north like it does, it can appear brighter just because you're looking through less air. I mean, I drove literally from Miami to Cape Canaveral one night without headlights, testing my theory that you could drive without headlights in Florida because they make all their highways, including I-95, out of pulverized torsion field limestone. You know, it's it's uh, concrete. So you can literally, and of course, I had to turn the lights on when I saw a cop. So, But it, it was an interesting experiment because once my eyes dark adapted, it was like driving under under early dawn light. And, and the ancients always used to say that Venus used to be so bright, obviously without air pollution, that you had a shadow cast by Venus. Oh, you still do here. I can see the shadow of Venus. Just put a pencil up and you can see it on the porch. little dark streak. Okay. Um, I want to get back to the idea of what's Copperfield going to do. Because I have a feeling, and this is the out, outrageous model, but that's what I'm known for, I guess. He may actually make the moon disappear for everybody all over the world, in which case it would be the perfect way to introduce the idea, we are not alone, we have family, we have neighbors, we have visitors, we have a a dimension of sight and sound, not of mind that is different than everybody thinks. So how could he do this? What if, Andrew, they've spent the last 50 years figuring out how to turn the dome back on so it functions like it used to, what's left of it, and the front side that we see, the Earth side, there's enough left that literally by throwing a switch, the deep state, whoever, you know, Copperfield's dad really was, randomly being posted to Roswell, yell right, and then this guy's going to make the moon disappear later in his career, is it part of a plan to introduce extraterrestrial reality in a really, really big way, because you know that if it if it happens, the internet is going to be absolutely overwhelmed with speculation. How did he do it? How did he do it? How did he do it? If there is an ancient active smart architecture dome around the moon, all they have to do is flip a switch because the energy is coming from the sun anyway. So you basically make it look like those um, LED Invisicam uh, things they put on certain military fighters where you've got a camera on the backside and it, the front side that you're seeing is LEDs and the camera transmits the front side to the backside so it appears to literally meld into the background of the sky. What if by flipping a switch, somebody can make the moon appear to meld into the starry background of the night of February 21st, which is a full moon and... We now know, based on the South Korean Denuri spacecraft measurements, one of the really weird mysteries which surfaced just this week, they measured the magnetic field of the far side of the moon and the near side of the moon, and the far side is three times stronger, and they absolutely absolutely don't have a clue. They're talking about more water in the crust, different mantle, different magma, different, you know, usual crapola, if it's an ET artifact around the moon, the ancient lunar globe dome, and the front side is almost destroyed, and the back side is in much better shape, it matches not only these measurements, but measurements going all the way back 
1946 when the U.S. Army, under a project called Project Diana from Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, the Signal Corps of the U.S. Army, sent and received a radar echo from the moon with 1940s technology. And when you look at the numbers, they shouldn't have seen anything. The moon, demonstrably, the dome, acted like an amplifier and beamed back an echo of the signal they sent to the moon, and you can see it in the graphical traces. I can't wait for February 24th. Yes? <laughs> well, I... I... We have to wait and see, but it's sure going to get a lot of people looking up. Well, he's like, oh, not shit. giving any clues as to how, no. where, what, when. I'm, I'm telling no. you, if he does it in a stage or on, on the screen, no one's going to believe it. He will have no. destroyed his reputation. It's no, got to be something he, bigger. Yeah, he's actually said in interviews, he says, if you notice weird things happening in the sky, that's us doing our work. And I, I don't know what that means. He's being very cryptic. But Getting ready. Practice. Yes, but that's exactly what they're doing. And he's saying, if you're looking up and you see some strange things, that's us. Just, shh, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. And I mean, if, if, if there's, I mean, again, this guy doesn't need to do this anymore. He's a billionaire. He doesn't have to do anything. The man's in his, I, I don't know, he's in his mid-60s or maybe he's in, I don't, whatever. The, the thing is, he doesn't have to do any of this. He could just retire and throw his feet well, on the Well, come on, these days, 60s is just getting started. Well, exactly, and that's why I say people who are you know picking at him, it's like, no, guys, this guy's a magician. He's a trickster. He's up to something, but he's also aligned with an ancient tradition that, Georgia, I'm sure you have a lot to say well, about. Well, you know what this really, really is echoing in my mind? Thank you, Arthur. Any sufficiently advanced technology there you go. is indistinguishable from what? The doorway to... Disclosure could be through a magician. Mm. How much more appropriate? Remember the um, secret conclave of the um, oh national, he's now the National Reconnaissance Agency. It used to be cryptography and codes and all that. They're the folks that broke Enigma, whatever. They were run by an army major named, uh, oh, I can't remember his last name. I got into his archives at, at Yale and found the actual printout of the face on the 30-foot-long photographic record that um, uh, Marconi had recorded in 1924 with uh, a guy named Jenkins, the Jenkins camera. So if it's David Copperfield and the magic doorway we're going to go through, the beginning of next year could completely upend every expectation of every pundit in every nation and in every media all over the world. Well, I'll tell you, um, Richard, Cynthia might want to chirp in on this, but she's been sort of, <laughs> we've been having a bit of back and forth and we can. And she says that we're about ready for a flip. We're about ready for a real big change. And, a, a, and I think she, what she meant is a real consciousness change and that something's reverberating and about ready to explode. And I think we've been kind of touching on that tonight, um, uh, Maria and Georgia and you. Maybe a little bit myself, and uh, the you know the tuning fork is vibrating heavily and it's pointing in a certain direction. You can't surf unless surf is up, and surf is up. So look, 
for your mission, everyone out there tonight, given what we've talked about, given the spectrum of vast possibilities we've tried to limb out in three painfully too short hours, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that if we act as the coherent pilot wave, we can get ceasefire in in uh, uh, Gaza and a ceasefire in Ukraine. There's already nibbles. Did you ever imagine you would hear rumors that Putin wants a pause? Anything is possible. So focus on tonight and think of anything as possible. Include peace on earth and goodwill to men of goodwill. Here, here. Okay, we got a few minutes. Who wants yeah, to take I'd the floor? I'd like to jump in. Kinthea! She lives. I'm sorry. I was unable to unmute it's okay. previously, and it's been a fabulous show. So I just want. By the to... way, what I want to do is post it full on on the top of the main page. It's our gift, our Christmas gift to everyone, all you people in our audience who've been talking to people, family, cousins, lovers, whatever, and they say, "Oh, you're into that wacko stuff." Let them listen free to our Christmas Eve celebration tonight. And I guarantee you those conversations – sorry, Kintia, go ahead. No, that's all right. That's all right. I'm, I'm just really so delighted with tonight's show. And I wanted to say, as above, so below. And, Andrew, you were talking about the light and how it's getting brighter. Mm. And I was reflecting on how we are all made of stardust. I mean, we're all made of the, the earth itself components of earth we're all breathing the same air and it's circulating around the planet but that's not all that's circulating it's our vibration our consciousness as it's going out it's like music we are influencing each other and also breathing in each other's essence so to speak and i just want to thank everyone in this audience tonight for being part of bringing about a new world because we are on the threshold of a new world and by holding the awareness of our unity in light in the Christ consciousness in light in love however you phrase it to yourself we all have a core being and that core being is connected like the roots of a tree are connected underneath the ground. They're all connected to each other. And we are all anchored into the earth, and we're also anchored into the stars. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year. Share the light, share the love, and get ready for magnificent, wondrous things. I know, I feel like we're in a birth canal, and it could be... <laughs> It could be a little rattling, but hey, we're headed towards really great things. Merry Christmas, everyone, and Happy New Year. Look up. Up is the only place to go. Good night, everyone. With a tail as big as a kite Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? Ringing.
through the sky, shepherd boy. Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? A song, a song. With a voice as big as the sea, with a voice as big as the sea, said the shepherd boy to the mighty king, do you know what I know, what I know, what I know? 